David Jansen as Dr. Richard Kimball, an innocent victim of blind justice, falsely convicted for the murder of his wife. Reprieved by fate when a train wreck freed him en route to the death house, freed him to hide in lonely desperation, to change his identity, to toil at many jobs, freed him to search for a one-armed man he saw leave the scene of the crime, freed him to run before the relentless pursuit of the police lieutenant obsessed with his capture. Mom really did did well going there to the Price Club and getting us uh, aged, to, aged to perfection. Yeah. I'll tell you, there's nothing like going into one of those big bins and uh, you know finding one of those big old boxes and then bringing it home and cutting that thing up. It's like Elio's, you know, the allure of Elio's. And it's funny, I I got an Elio's recently, and they're so much smaller than I remember those those three stripes. <laughs> I was going to ask, when was the last time you had an Elio's? Well, you know, I was a big Elio's guy growing I was, up. I, mean, I was too, point, but I haven't had one forever. I, I, I felt like at some point they changed the recipe because somewhere around high school or even maybe before middle school, it sounded like it felt like it tasted different. I don't know if it was we were preparing it differently. Like the crust felt different. So it kind of put me off of it. And for years, I mean, I'm a big frozen pizza connoisseur. Uh, I love myself some frozen pizza. And um, it had a deal like the local stop and shop. You know, it was like the, the old-fashioned box, two for four or whatever it was, two for eight. And I was like, oh, wow. So I got it. And first thing I, uh, I reflect on is like, you know, it's just basically a large slice. You're cutting up into three slices. I was like, all right. And then you realize how much of it you can eat. So, of course, my mom would be pissed back in the day when she'd get me the box and I'd house like – you know, two of the trays, two or three, or maybe even have all three. And she's like, come on, we just bought this today. And I'm like, I'm hungry. <laughs> I don't know? think I ever had more than one, but I would definitely. Oh, I would have two and and I maybe, you know, I would do like, I would go crazy and break off a, a slice of the third. So I'd only have two slices left frozen back in the fridge, you know. The, the, in the old heyday of like going through like the frozen pretzels, you'd get, uh, you know, all the different various kind of like, um, uh, like snacks my mom would have for me when I get home from school before and that was Elio's was one time was in there or like the little uh those little pretzel pretzel bites too I remember them and you know there was all kinds of stuff back in the day that that were that would service as like a snack and Elio's would be a snack but it'd be turned into a meal you know yeah. so well you never was, had was, a you never had a toaster oven so. No, I did not. No, we had the conventional oven, and then we had a gas oven, and then we had a microwave. So, so it was, you and I didn't really mess with the oven. Oh, so you did Elio's in the microwave? Yeah, that was the '80s. You know, microwaves do everything. So just shut up and throw it in the microwave. <laughs> and I mean, I would turn a pilot light on to do make pasta or craft macaroni and cheese because I was a big craft macaroni and cheese eater. But I never really messed with the stove yes. or the oven. So, so yeah, everything a hundred percent. Unless my mom made dinner and it was put in the oven. If we have like a, 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 a like a frozen pizza from Pathmark or wherever the hell, 
she'd use the oven. But when I was heating it up, I was, dee, 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 you know, so it was always coming out, you know, like very floppy. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. You know, very flaccid. And it's like, you know, and it wasn't crusty at all. But I yeah. guess you, you had a toaster. Oven, yeah. Right? Well, when, or, when my mom remarried and we moved to the Albany area, we got a, we got a toaster oven. And we didn't have one in Philadelphia, but when we moved, we got one. And it was, like, back in the day, toaster oven. It wasn't, like, the ones now where you can, like, you know, rotisserie a chicken in there. This is just, like, <laughs> you can put a small person in there. <laughs> this was really, like, you just toasted a bagel if you're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh. Martin had one. So I grew up over Martin's house with, like, you know, he'd always do his, like, hot dogs in there. And that yeah. was always crazy for me, you know, putting that little special. Uh, metal thing you'd put it on so the grease can fall into the bottom bit like that and it always come out looking really good where i would just like you know boil my hot dogs at home and help yeah, or whatever yeah. before we you know so you know. so so i, I was fascinated my, by it i would do my elios in the toaster oven and uh, yeah. well, there really came, wasn't any more room then. for more than one slice so i wonder more well, than true. one you know row one yeah. one tray one uh yeah slab of elios and it would take a while too right how long would that sucker it's like 10 minutes or no uh, it, you turn it. It, it could have been like twenty. I mean, it could have been a good twenty. Yeah, who knows? I can't, can't remember. At it. Don't touch that glass, so you get the crap burn out of you. Yeah, <laughs> the glass, your the fingerprints are right off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you gotta watch out, son, because that's how criminals take their fingerprints off. They uh, <laughs> they they burn it to. Yeah, I wasn't to allowed to when my parents weren't home. I wasn't allowed to use the oven or the stove because it was an electric range and it would stay really hot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my mom was afraid that I would forget that I used it. And, uh, you know. You, just be, you put your face on it by accident. <laughs> Climb on it. Well, our, our microwave we had, which was the first microwave we got in Which was uh, the first microwave ever made. It was the pilot microwave. It was the prototype. Um, it was a really good big microwave. And we had that until college. And then it finally died on us, which I guess in retrospect is like 15 years. But. Uh, that sucker we had all through my childhood and it came with the, the probe where you'd open the microwave and then there was like a, like a, like a mini jack and you put plug in this device with a, like a metal like rod coming out and then yeah. you put that. So if I wanted to make hot chocolate, put the hot chocolate in the microwave, put that plug in the probe, put it in and it would also heat the liquid, you know what I mean? And it was great. And oh, so it wasn't day, like, like a thermometer. The thing itself would heat up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't heat up like turn red like you'd see, you know, but it, I guess it's the same, you know, like you brand somebody. Yeah. Oh, God. That's how my mom used to discipline me when she'd have a couple drinks. Cauterize uh, a wound. Yeah, come here, quick. Oh, oh God. But uh, the thing, it was very much like a, uh, a, a, a kind of a thing where uh, the, the idea, like in the 70s with the coffee, you know, like if you had a, you know, you can plug the, the, the device into the thing and then you could put it into your cup and it would warm the cup, you know. So they was they added this thing and it was um, of the day where, you know, you had accessories and stuff for the microwave. So we, you didn't break it out all the time, but it was it was cool when you're like, you know what, if I want to make myself some hot chocolate, you know, instead of boiling some water, I'll just, you know, heat it up in the old microwave that way. And then they did... Ever skewer like a hot dog quickly. with it? No. Cook, that was cook a hot idea. dog from the inside out. <laughs> I wonder if it would just blow it up. You know I mean, like, I don't know if it, you know, who knows what all that crazy. I'm just a caveman. I don't know your ways, but it could have been the technology could have just been like, you know, I don't know if it's getting hotter or if it's just sending like gamma rays, you know, yeah. so I don't know what would happen, you know, if you Turn tried to. And yeah. I would probably 
impale myself trying to get it through a frozen hot dog no my ass <laughs> <laughs> just thaw them out you know so but welcome to saturday night movie sleepovers over there we got jay blake and i'm dion baia and we're back again for the spring season so uh having a good old-fashioned sleepover like we always used to do yeah back like back in the day like wait we're going way down the alley Way down the alley. I hope everyone's been good and everyone's had a good, uh, good, good time while we've been away, and we're glad we're all back together. I don't good know. Night, When's the last like episode proper that we did? Because like I'm thinking, like I don't even know if I know how to do it anymore. <laughs> like, what's what's it, our it, format? What do we do on this show? Was it Day of the Dead? Yeah, it might have been. Did we do that for Halloween? And, yeah, we did it around Halloween, maybe, and then uh, I think didn't we do a Christmas special, and then we just did like a yeah. like a f- like late winter. Yeah, but those are just twenty twenty three special. That's just like yeah. us BSing. I'm trying to think when was the last. You know, like I had I no recollection. I had no recollection of us doing Day of the Dead until you just said it. And even though you said the day, I think we did day of the day. (laughs) Even though you just said it, I was like, yeah, I guess I remember that we did it, but I don't remember doing it. Yeah. And we had the book and we talked about stuff and Bub and Ramiro, all that stuff. I would assume like six months ago. I would assume those are the things we talked about, (laughs) but we brought up the Hanson brothers. And then we were talking about, um, Nickelodeon. And you can't do that on television and pinwheel. It was a really enthralled episode. I, really, I don't remember it. I'll be honest with you. I don't remember it. Um, so I must we haven't done this in a while. I sent my twin to do that one. I knew it. He was the goatee list. <laughs> Jake. Guy. Said, I was like, you're B. Jake. <laughs> B. Jake. B. Jake, you're looking a little different. <laughs> well, I can't put my hand, finger right on it. Um, so how you been? What's going on? You know, same old trying to do a ton of things one of these days off you and i will figure out how to do just like one thing yeah and then we'll have time to do like to relax which would be nice <laughs> yeah i you don't know. know what it is with us yeah, yeah. i was uh, too many too many irons in the fire always yeah. producing a record making a movie yeah. working uh I have all these other ideas of things I want to do. And, um, you know, and I say this all the time. I feel like just as you get older, at least in my, I don't know how people, you know, people with huge families and children and, you know, uh, like a friend of mine, like, you know, he's like, I got two soccer games tomorrow and I got five lacrosse games on Sunday. Cause this kid, he has, he has two or three kids and they're doing very, so it's just like, as we get older, I just find that there's less time. And I, I think I said this tons of times, but I always just feel like I have less time to do things like during the course of a day. Yeah. You know, I don't know where the time goes. We're like five, 10 years ago, you and I were doing, as we lamented before, we were doing this podcast where it was every two weeks, we're doing this heavy prep, reading a novelization, watching a movie, maybe watching special features, reading up where we could about it, whatever the heck, watching site, whatever we needed to do for that episode. On top of us doing our extracurricular activities, yeah. our regular life, our day jobs, writing books, you know, Casting on uh, other people's podcasts. It was like, yeah, having to do prep for that as well. And it's just, uh, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm a 
sissy or whatever thing. It's just, I just, I just, I get tired now. I'm just like, I'm just, you know, I'm like, oh God, the day just takes it out of me. And I get home and I don't, it, it, it even now affects my quality of life where like, I don't even want to watch, you know, movies or get on, you know, go around and look what's on the, the streaming channels. I'm just, I get home and I'll put on something just, I know that's comforting. And then that's mindless. You know, I've been getting into a bit of hoarders. <laughs> I don't want to say, you know, uh, that or like a dateline, you know, uh, but it's just fun. You know, I, I tend to watch some of that stuff now, which is kind of completely disposable and kind of not really of any value, but it just kind of just lets your mind kind of go into standby, you know? Yeah. Oh, I hear you, man. That's kind of, that was like Hallmark movies for me. Like you don't really need to concentrate too hard. <laughs> you just, you just got to turn it on and it's like cotton candy. You don't even need to chew it. You just, <laughs> you just suck on it. It goes put it on your tongue and it melts. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. There's just, I mean, I think that was, you know, that was one of the main reasons why we kind of slowed down significantly on this. I think we just, it was taking up too much time and there was other shit that we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, But we, we enjoy this format so much. We come back to it. We like it. We like the podcast. It's It's not that we don't want to do it. It's just that like, yeah. You know, like I was, last time we spoke, I was like, I want to write a book about this, about like martial arts movies. And I still am kind of like watching movies for that. But I think I cracked the code. I mean, I don't know if you and I ever talked about it, but for the longest time, it started off with me wanting to make a documentary about Freddie King, the blues guitar player. Yeah. And then I was like, I don't know if enough people care about Freddie King to make a documentary about Freddie King besides me. <laughs> Yeah. I said, like, well, what if I did one about like the three kings? I did one about BB King. Yeah. Like I did a movie that was about the three of them: Albert King, BB King, and Freddie King. Yeah, no relation. And uh, the <laughs> other, and like a month ago, I was watching something, and I was like, it, like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh, that's a for that's the format. Like I think I figured out kings. how to do it. Um, so now I'm th- I'm thinking about that while I'm trying to make another yeah. documentary. And- I think you could find. I mean, you know, BB's popular enough, but. I think people would want to see talk about Albert and Freddie. I mean, how formative they are. And yeah, there's just you know, not a, like there's nothing about. I know, Freddy, you know, that, yeah. that's why I wanted. And to And I do don't it. think there's even Albert either. I think the two of them, you know, like there's so much on BB you could probably find. Over yeah, the there's probably the there's already documentaries find. about BB. Yeah, God but, bless his cotton socks. You know, I mean, but like you know, you, like you're saying, Albert and Freddie, especially, it's just really. You know, those, they were such colossal titans, Albert, with his freaking uh, V-shaped guitar and Freddie, you know. Uh, like the Freddie, day, who would you, At the end of the day, like, I don't know anything. I don't really know much about Freddie King, and he's, like, my favorite blues artist. Which, did he flip, was he, did he Hendrix it? Which one? Was it Albert, maybe, that, or maybe Albert was the one that sh- strang it the opposite way? Al, Al, I think he had. Albert might have been left-handed. I know Albert had some kind of like crazy tuning because yeah, when he learned how to play, he didn't know, you know, when he taught he himself played, how to play, he didn't know how to tune a guitar. So he and just I think was, you're right. I think he he would just pick it up and play it, whatever tuning it was. In. <laughs> and I think the reason also is since you're right, he was left-handed. He would pick up and play a right-handed guitar, so he learned to play the opposite ways where your lower yeah. strings are on the bottom. So I think. Moving on, if I'm correct, even when he got left-handed guitars, I think he would string them that way, maybe. If that yeah, makes probably. Sense, you know, because, and then the high on the top, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but this is what we're talking. And then like the, inf- the influence of like, you know, Freddie King on like Eric Clapton or Buddy Guy or, you know, Albert King, all the, there's so many good songs, uh, you know, uh, Albert sat in with the doors, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, that would be a great document. Look I at know, this. See, we can, that's yeah. what, let's, we can, we can I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts on it later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I yeah. that but one. you're right. It's hard because there's so much, and that's also the bigger, I, I, it's like, I, I end up feel like I'm complaining all the time now with my life over the past couple of years, but it's like, there's just, it's almost overwhelming. There's so much out there that, you know, and there's, there's so much stuff for eyeballs to get on that it's harder now to find your core audience that'll so like you're saying, uh, point is, is there a, enough of an audience that's going to care about seeing? And you're right. There are blues audiences and there's, but I also find now that it's hard to get, engage or get those audiences to see because, you know, they don't follow the traditional forms of how stuff used to be advertised or broadcast. So, you know, that's what I say about series or movies. There could be tons of stuff that I know I'll enjoy, but because there's so much out there, I may never even see a trailer for it. You know, or know that it's there unless I stumble across it or someone word of mouth tells me. But let's take everybody back to a simpler time. (laughs) 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 What is it? I guess 30 years ago. 30 years. It's the 30th anniversary. anniversary. We're celebrating an anniversary today, Dion. Yeah. I knew it. So, uh, like Dion said, this is Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. And uh, in case you're unfamiliar with the show, <laughs> the normal format was that we would choose a movie and we talk at, about it um, until there was nothing left to say about it. So or we just uh, passed out. We decided that uh, we haven't done an episode proper in a long time. And uh, that it would be fun to do one for springtime going into summer. And, uh, the reason why this one got picked was basically Dion and I were texting and I said, Hey, I just watched the fugitive. It was like a month ago. I don't know. Three weeks ago, a month ago. I said, I just watched the fugitive. It holds up. And then we're like, okay, well, yeah. you want to talk about it on the show? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, we decided to, uh, talk about the fugitive today from 1993. You know, one of the things well, I did it. One of the things I did want to look up, which I didn't, is uh, my recollection is that we're, uh, there were a lot of like TV movie adaptations of television, of old TV shows in the 90s. Yeah, they were kind of like re- the first like almost um, new wave postmodern era of reboots in that era they were starting to recycle stuff like in the hillbillies yeah a lot of them were comedies but you also had dramas too and stuff like that and thrillers and this was certainly a successful example of them for instance beverly hillbillies also came out in 1993 yeah and i wonder what was like the first movie that obviously not like the first tv show to be adapted to a movie i'm sure that probably goes back much earlier than the 90s but i wonder what was like the cat, if there was like a catalyst, like a hit that they were that like, okay, ca- let's start. Yeah. Like what started it, uh, for the nineties. Cause I was going to say maybe it was the Flintstones, but apparently that was a year after this. That was 94. Well, it could have also been them looking at like Batman. Did they said this movie was five years in development, the fugitive. So maybe it was something like the Batman or the Superman's are like, Hey, these properties are doing well with fresh reboots. Maybe if we look at 
other stuff we have that we can reap. Star Trek did it, you know, a decade before with uh, the, the uh, or more than that, 15 years before or so. So maybe it was just the success of those kind of things and then looking for material at the time because it, we were getting out of that 80s era and this was and this was a sweet spot too when it came out because it was a huge movie and that was another reason for picking it it was something that it was so popular for our you know early teens this 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 movie when it came out and uh it kind of fit into the big budget movies of like a jurassic park and those special effect movies for obvious reasons we can get into but at the same time it was still just a good old thriller it wasn't really relying so much on big uh cgi or not or or effects at the time but it did have one big crowd pleasing one that everyone talked about that got us on into the seats so i i kind of equated in the era of like the big hollywood you know um extravagant hundred million movie extravaganza budgets you know like that and uh uh i think it was very popular at the time it came out and that's you know it had like a loving place in our hearts now yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't look to see how much what the budget was. I mean, because it doesn't seem like it's that huge of a budget, but um, it was something. It wasn't that bad. It was forty four million, which isn't that. I mean, I don't for 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 today, because I remember at the yeah. time when Waterworld came out in like ninety five or ninety six, that was a hundred million. That was like the biggest budget of up until that time or something. Yeah. That, you know, because of all that stuff. And then this was forty four million. It ended up grossing. 368.9 million you know worldwide yeah this certainly got its money back and then when it was released on all the different medias vhs dvd laserdisc it got another like 10 million in revenue from you know the video sales the aftermarket out of the theater sales you know i feel like it was definitely like and a, six weeks on top at number one an unexpected success you know what i mean like i feel like yeah i feel like nobody Nobody thought, nobody knew whoever made it. Like, nobody, even probably, even when you saw advertisements for it or whatever, like, probably nobody realized that it was going to get nominated for Nobody realized it was going to be as big as it was. It was going to make as much money as it did. It was going to be kind of as monumental as it was. And it was going to be nominated for seven Academy Awards, I think it got yeah. nominated for. So I feel like it was like a big sleeper in that sense. Like, it came and it, it just... Was that the right time? It was, it was. I mean, all the. It was timing, but it's also solid. You know, I think. Yeah. You know, the, I don't know when the first like Drifter television series was. Maybe this was it. I mean, this was like the show comes out in what, like 64 or something like that? 63 to 67. Yeah. So, you know, that became a format of like the Drifter, you know, the show where for some reason someone just like drifts from town to town and gets into new adventures, helps people along the way, you know, obviously like Kung Fu, the, the incredible Hulk, uh, highway to heaven. It's, it became <laughs> yeah. a very adaptable, like it was, it's, you know, kind it's of like genre, a solid genre. It's like a solid genre. It's a, it's a great like convention to put, um, in a certain extent, even though like MacGyver was like, based in one place like it's sort of saying like he 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 did that too especially in the early seasons because he was like off yeah you know Over before the world. he before he was just like homebound and like helping his friends yeah well the <laughs> fe- he got the first couple of years of working at the phoenix foundation you know he was doing such crazy stuff everywhere over there he's like you know pete i need to just stay low you know so they they just 
put him domestic and he kind of semi-retired for the Phoenix Foundation. Still was getting a, probably a really fat pension, you know, and a paycheck or something like that. And then he was able to help his friends out on the side and then do that kind of stuff. The, uh... But I, I th the thing that also ch figures into this too is they add that Giallo kind of, you know, uh, uh, storyline, the overarching that he's not just, you know, he's trying to clear his name. Yeah. You know, and that's another great way of just having it be a fresh tight. There's a purpose for his drifting. You know, I'm sure there's those all those other shows did have a purpose for whatever reason, but it's it kind of propels the story. And we can get into a little of the, the original series a little later on, but it was kind of the first of its kind where up until that point, a lot of the shows back then were anthologies in a certain sense where, you know, if you missed a week. And you came back for the most part, you know, you didn't really need to know what was going on. And this was a show that kind of almost dares you to, you've got to watch every episode because every episode's leading to a conclusion of finding out a clue. And, you know, you know, he didn't kill his wife. He's trying to find the guy who did it. And if you miss a week, you may miss a clue because there's so many, I don't know, 150 episodes or however long the, I think it's five seasons or four seasons was getting to the end and then it ends up being the original series when they do the finale in 67 or something it's the most watched show of all time up until i think mash beats it and then maybe like dallas beats it or something like yeah. that you know what i mean but but it was pretty sizable everybody and they were getting crazy shares like 44 million people watched tuned in for the final episode and to give you some example like a lot of like the late night late night comedians only get like 1 million and like, you know, uh, number one shows on cable news get like three or four million, you know. But back in the day, select audience, you only got three channels, four channels or whatever. Something like Carson was pulling like 24 million a night or something yeah. like that, you know. So for everyone, like 70% of the uh, American families are watching, you know, the, 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 the conclusion of, you know, MASH or Dallas or this. That's pretty incredible. Kind of the modern one of the modern kind of versions of this type of storytelling is um, that movie, that, that show that I texted you about. I don't know if you got a chance to watch that poker face show. That's no, my a, mom loves it though. That's a very much. My mom's been wanting it. Yeah. That's, I think it's on Peacock maybe. I think yeah. like that's very much like something happens. Like, it's like Columbo. It's very eccentric. <laughs> You're going to love it. There's famous people. Have the, the girl from S, S, uh, SVU, SVU's in it. You know? Yeah, like, okay, like, we'll watch it. It's kind of, uh, it's like she's Columbo-esque, but it's this drifter yeah. finding herself as she's trying to do stuff or running from people. You know, like she finds herself in a new place with a new story every episode. Um, so that's kind of like a, a new version of it. But, what I'm getting at is like, it's a classic kind of like television convention, but at th it's also beautifully simple. And it, what it's like a perfect idea to translate to the big screen, to, to tell in like a truncated, like hour and a half, two hour format. It, and I think that's one of the reasons why it ended up being so successful is because it just works. It's a, you know, apparently there, we can get more into the details of the making of it, but and like there wasn't ever like an actual solid script that they were working on. But the story itself is just like brilliant in the way that we talked about like um, Back to the Future or anything. No, I was, or like Take I It, was, you know, like where it's just like there's a very specific goal and everything that has happens in the movie is driving towards that goal. <laughs> And there's like I, that. 
that was going to be the first thing I said to you when we started recording. At the top of my notes, I have I wrote thesis, and I was going to put you with the question, Blake. <laughs> bold statement, but do you think this may be an example of a perfect script in a kind of way, like a Back to the Future, where it's like, if you analyze it, is there anything that's kind of just like fat on it? I mean, every everything kind of propels the next thing to the next you know what i mean and, and i mean i'm sure there is something there maybe the banter between uh you know tom lee jones's u.s marshals or so, something but for the most part everything is just propelling the story along and going and that's why i think it kind of holds up yeah it's tight this shit is tight man. yeah it's tight it's tight <laughs> it just it just works and it's simple yeah. You know like the story you know like you figure it out yes there's some exposition which I get, you know, the, handled beautifully. The exposition of like the television show is told like in a in a in like a voiceover yeah, at the beginning of the first. Yeah, episode. William Conrad were like, yeah, a Quinn Martin production. Here Richard Kimball. We see it happen, but it ha like it's quick. It moves, and then bam, we're in this story. We uh, empathize and sympathize with you know Richard Kimball for many reasons. One, it's like well written, but we love Harrison Ford. I think the part of I, I like in no small way is the success of this movie. You know, like yeah, you, you can't overlook the power of Harrison Ford at that period of time. And, he was a powerhouse, and what he brought to the movie, not just in terms of his performance, which is fantastic, but also like just his clout. Um, and it's just like he, he's a likable guy. People yeah, like him. He's like you. Like he you brings see, in. You see him. Yeah. and we're conditioned to like him. And so, yeah, he's Indiana Jones. He's Han Solo, and we care for him already. That we're bringing that baggage. So it is a beautiful uh, choice of casting. Casting you know, for that. Yeah, I mean, ca the casting was a huge part of this movie. There's this thing that I always go back to, and this it doesn't really apply to this story, but it does make me think of it in terms of the importance of casting. And unfortunately. This is coming off the top of my head, so uh, apologies to the people that don't like that we get things wrong. We don't know anything. <laughs> but there's this Let's movie. The tape. There's this movie that stars Simon Pegg, and it's based on the true story of like this tabloid writer. It's like based on his autobiography of like, like this crazy life that he led as a tabloid writer. And uh, I forget what it's called. Jeff Bridges is in it. I'm sure somebody who's listening to this right now knows the movie I'm talking about. But I remember, like, renting the DVD from Netflix, which is now, uh, you know, RIP Netflix DVD. <laughs> you can't get Netflix in the mail I think, anymore? I think they just, I think they're just, they just announced the ending of it, like, recently. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but I was always thinking of going back to that because I liked, I liked, you know, I mean, some stuff you just, anyway. Yeah. So pre-streaming, I rented this movie yeah. from Netflix and I was watching the special features and the director was talking about how, like, the character that Simon Pegg plays in this, in that movie is, is not likable. I mean, it's just like, he's kind of despicable in a lot of ways. So it was really important to cast somebody that the audiences just like. <laughs> because if you cast the wrong person, then you just end up hating the main character of the whole movie. So they needed to find a, per, an actor who, like, you just like when you see them. And so they cast Simon Pegg. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, I like Simon Pegg, so I like this character. But he's all, but the character's not a good person in this movie. It's like Gene Wilder in um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, you just need to find... <laughs> and 
Yeah. You know, obviously, like, there's nothing about Richard Kimball that you don't like as a character. But, like, casting Harrison Ford was, like, shorthand to get us (laughs) right to, like, we feel for this guy. We like this guy. We're going to follow this guy on this adventure. And in terms of a movie-going audience buying a ticket, you know, like, I love Han Solo. I love Indiana Jones. Like, Witness by that time was a really big movie. You know, so it was like you understood, uh, you know, like you knew what you're getting into with the Harrison Ford movie. I just had this conversation with my mom recently about something. And I said, over like, a box of pizza, I said, a bucket of pizza. I was like, uh, I don't remember what movie we were talking about. Oh, maybe it was Top, maybe it was Maverick, Top Gun Maverick. And, um, I said, look, I'm no like specific, I'm not like specifically a Tom Cruise fan. But I know that when I go see a Tom Cruise movie, it's going to be good. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know that, like, he does movies that are of a certain caliber, of a certain quality. And I felt like Harrison Ford, especially back then, you kind of had that. And yeah, and it was that star power, too, of the time where, you know, like you said, it would get people into the theater and people wanted to see that. And it was almost a different era where you were going to see it because it was looked like a good movie, but also because it was a Harrison Ford movie and it looked interesting and it was fun and the character is so virtuous in the movie where he's helping people you know he's a good guy so you're you're completely feeling it for him and one of my complaints with some of the the superhero movies of the past 20 years is that they spend so much time on that you know the exposition of how they become the superhero which a lot of us know for the most part with the bigger superheroes and i i loved how in that uh ed norton hulk movie um you know, you just, they sum it all up in the credits and that's all you need directed by. And then it's done. And then you're right here. And this is a, like you said, the original series did that. The original series, you know, beforehand would give you a little voiceover by William Conrad, which was, it was a Quinn Martin production. So they were very much into voiceover and act structures. It was, it's kind of a format that they don't really use anymore. Um, but they didn't show it. The, I think the pilot starts off where he's on the run. You know, and everything was told through exposition. And then later in the series, you get flashbacks of what happened in the train crash in the original series. And I love how Andrew Davis, the director of this movie, he did that. He was always very good at summing stuff up, um, you know, in the the credits. You know, we have other movies he did like Above the Law or uh, uh, Under Siege and stuff like that. He's very good at uh, just uh, summing everything up before you so you don't have any of this because that could have been some baggage we had a half hour of the movie could have been that if another director it came could have in been and the wanted whole to show movie. us you could, yeah you, if you, know. you could have ended with him like with the train crash <laughs> if you really yeah, want and then come told, back for part two you could have told that story it could have been like a courtroom drama that then ends yeah. with but for for the people who haven't seen it and to have decided to have that completely spoiled today or for the people that have seen it but haven't seen it in a long time uh, Dan, do you think you could give us a very short synopsis of what the story is? Well, it's why he's a doctor. He's a vascular surgeon, right? And and his his wife is brutally murdered, and he is um, uh, tried for it, and he's convicted, and he's gonna go get lethal injection, uh, death row, and then on transit to another prison, the bus crashes, and he escapes, and the U.S. Marshals go after him, and he goes on the run. At the same time, it's going on the run, but he has the purpose of trying to, um, you know, find the killer of his wife that no one believed there was one of. They, they were saying it was an invention from his head. And that story is him trying to keep one step ahead of the, the pursuers. He's the pursuee, 
and the U.S. Marshals are going after him, and you have this great story of the U.S. Marshals who are doing their job just one step behind them, and at the same time, them beginning to see the subplot of them doing their little investigation and realizing, oh, by the end of the movie, Harrison Ford is right. He did, uh, he was framed, and then you have the the end the finale be you realize yes not only was he right there is a reason behind it it's all this pharmaceutical es- you know corporate espionage that he was uh inadvertently tangled into and then it sums up pretty nicely and it it's it, what was it it's a two-hour movie or so like that maybe a little longer and it just flows it flies you know and it, and it, and it just keeps you at the edge of your seat and it keeps you your attention and um you know it really keeps you wrapped up in it and uh every step just you know you get another un- unravel of the yarn and it's um i think it, it just it's superb in that sense yeah it's a movie with fantastic set pieces whether it's the train crash the dam scene the saint patty's day parade scene you know like it well the whole use of chicago there i love yeah you it's know, like it the, just you, know, you get yeah. like three or four of these really great set pieces that kind of like give you these big like tent poles in the middle of the movie markers in the movie to keep moving. And then you just have this simple story. Like you said, of this guy who's one trying to like avenge his wife's murder, but also trying to avenge his, his, you know, trying to clear his name. And then the other like flip side of like this amazing casting is we get Tommy Lee Jones as the U S marshal, um, Gerard, who's trying to catch him. And it's a brilliantly executed character because like he, like for all intents and purposes of this, for the, for the bulk of this movie is like, he's the antagonist. Yeah. You know, like we know that there's this like one armed killer who killed his wife, but that doesn't really get reintroduced until like almost act like act three of the movie. So for the bulk of this movie, the antagonist is, basically the person who's trying to stop Richard Kibble from fulfilling his goal of clearing his name and like a kind of avenging his wife's murder, not, you know, legally. I don't think, you know, I don't think, you know, he's, he's not on like got some vendetta that he's going to try to find this guy and kill him, but I think he wants to clear his name and have that guy brought to justice. Yeah. Um, But the brilliant use of them doing that is they set up in the script and the story that you then, or you're empathizing and kind of rooting for the antagonist as well because their their goals are admirable. They're trying to bring someone that you know, like like that whole very famous line. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. It's like that's not my job. My job is to hunt you down because you are technically a fugitive. Yeah, well, you know, I so think it sets you know, that up. That's that's it. You know, it's a it's like a very fine line that that they they brilliantly kind of straddle with the Tommy Lee Jones character and the U.S. Marshals. And that, like, yeah, he's the antagonist, and he seems like a bit of an asshole for a lot of the movie. But then, like, as the movie goes on, you like him more, and then you realize that, like, and ultimately he becomes, like, a hero. You know, like, you know, there's the scene where he's just, like, you know, when he he's chasing him out of the prison... And he's caught like in the door, the glass door, and he's just like shooting, like he's just trying to kill Harrison Ford. Yeah, and so like it's like this very brutal thing, but you realize that like ultimately, he his job is not to solve the murder, his job is just to bring it, Harrison Ford in. But then as he starts to realize like what's actually happening, 
it's just really well it's just really well constructed it, and it, and the performances are so good that it just it's like in some ways not totally like but in some ways like the, this movie is a little bit like lightning in a bottle like it just everything comes together really beautifully and then it being a remake or a reboot it does a it fulfills that um ambition as well because it is faithful to the original with all these different elements one of which being is uh in the original the guy was a lieutenant gerard going after him but that's the same character arc in the original series that that guy hey says i don't you know it, i don't care it's not my job to figure out if you're innocent or not i have to bring you in but then over the course of the of the four or five seasons he his story grows and he starts doubting you know and he starts believing kimball as well so that by the end of it they do have a similar kind of showdown at an amusement park in the finale when they find the one our man so they have that true character arc like the original and then they took that for the remake which is great and also a great homage for, to the original as well as since it was so episodic he would go hide in certain places or get assumed like like the bill bixby kind of thing uh, you know, where he's going from town to town, getting a menial job and trying to stay under the radar to try to get some money to, to propel what he's trying to do. You see that here with Harrison Ford a little bit, how he disguises as the um, the custodian and goes into the hospital, you know. So you have elements that the fans of the original series will like because it's, they're not just throwing everything out, the baby with the bathwater. They're taking, you know, the fundamental things that people loved and the true things that made that original series so unique and they're bringing it to the remake and they're dropping it in here so you know and in me when i was little i never saw the david jansen original series really so it was kind of new until people were like oh it's a remake of an old tv series that was very popular so but i didn't need to know that going in and watching this movie it was such a fresh new idea it it's it's summed up the entire series in two hours or so and it does it you know really effectively did you see it at the movies or rental? Oh, I saw it at the movies. I probably saw it opening night. You know, me, my dad, Martin uh, went, and you know that was a spectacle. And again, it's just funny nowadays watching these movies uh, to back then. You know, uh, but you know, you were going to see that bus crash at the beginning. You know, and and uh, the train and all that kind of stuff. And it was just, it was, it was. It was a huge, that's why I equate it with the Jurassic Park or T2. It was a big uh, footprint in my childhood of whenever it came out, going to the cinema and seeing that because it was so popular at the time. Yeah. It was one of the, it was, it hit at a certain place in 93 that it was, you know, for the summer, whenever it came out, you know, it was number one for six weeks at the box office and it was huge. And I remember going home and like playing with my G.I. Joe's still, you know, in eighth grade or whenever it was, you know, and playing the fugitive still at that time, you know, because it was so popular. So, yeah, I saw this in the theater. And then as soon as, of course, it came out on VHS, I got it and I probably dubbed it, you know, to watch the crap out of it. And then after that, I hadn't seen it in, in, in 25 years. Hence, when you said, hey, what about the fugitive? I'm like, oh, that's a great idea, because I'm sure a lot of people, our listeners like us, have such affinity for the movie it's still, we, we believe holds up. You just watched it and it'll be a great movie to talk to because it has so many correlations to all the other stuff we've done on the podcast, you know? Yeah. I don't think I saw it at the movies. We probably rented it when it was a new release. Um, I do remember that the train crash was a big thing. And it's funny when you watch, like I remember watching it like on some special effects show. And I remember in my mind, it was from this thing that I had taped off a of television. I think it was called Masters of Illusion, something, something special effects. 
and it was on network television. It was hosted by Roy Schreider and Jonathan Brandis. So it was like Sequest days. <laughs> and, um, and it was just, a, it was like a network special probably aired like on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. I can't remember. And I had taped it. And it was just like, you know, like any old special effects show that we grew up watching and like made us fascinated with movies. I remember it, it was, there was a segment in there about In the Mouth of Madness. So it had to be like, 90. oh, this is this, this is this, you brought this up, this, I thought the series, but you brought this episode up specifically before it with the In the Mouth of Madness. So, okay, this is that same show. Yeah. And then it, episode. Um, and I always thought that there was a segment from this about this, about the train crash in that I went on YouTube. They have it on YouTube and I kind of skimmed through it because I wanted to watch the segment on it and I couldn't find it. So it must, and whatever I'm thinking it's from, it must've been from something else. Well, that's where you say that because I had a memory of it being from that discovery show movie magic. Maybe, maybe and I saw I, that. But I went back and tried to find. I couldn't find it on YouTube. It's a, and I was, you it's know, a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know they did like Under Siege. They did so many movies back then. Demolition Man on that show, Movie Magic, Under Siege Two, and I thought it was that show, but it wasn't, and I couldn't find it. So maybe it was just supplemental material we had seen, or I don't know. But I remember there was a show that kind of covered it. You know, like one of those behind the scene movie shows on the Blu-ray. There's a featurette about the crash. But all they do, and and this is getting a little ahead, of, I guess, ahead of what I, what I expected the trajectory of this to go. But it, all they really do is talk about the actual crash, like that they yeah. crashed the, the train, the staging of it. Yeah, that they crashed a train into a bus, and this is how they did it, and they they chose a place in whatever North Carolina or whatever to do it, and how the how they did the crash. But I remember the show because they don't even mention the like the shot of him jumping off the bus, the money shot. Yeah, of him like narrowly escaping, getting crushed. Yeah, they don't even like mention that in this featurette. And so no. I remember there being like, you know, obviously like optical printing and green screen and everything. Like, yes, they had the footage of the crash, but they had to film him jumping off of the train. And I cannot find any. I, I scoured the internet looking for something about that, which is probably nothing more than what we just said, but I still wanted to see it. <laughs> well, same with me. I, I have that memory too. And I looked as well. Maybe we watched it the same time together when we were little, uh, but I have that because that was the money shot. That was up until that time, you know, where the technology was going with, uh, you know, these CGI movies and stuff like that and more computer based stuff and away from practical effects. Uh, that optical shot or that double shot of him jumping was the example of what we can do with the best. That was the best it was going to look up until 1993. You know what I mean? So it was so realistic looking. It looked like they had Harrison Ford do the stunt. You know, you're at the edge of your seat. Like, you know, I was, it, was, it was amazing at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it still looks good. But you can yeah, tell once, once that shot comes, you can tell, like, the... The quality yeah. of the image changes <laughs> for that just a shot. little bit, and then when he's running in with the train behind him, when he's in the leg shackles, that whole little sequence. Uh, but that was it was just incredible. That would be the trailer you'd see on the TV or in the movies, you know, and, and him just leaping, you know, and it was just such a huge thing. And I don't know why yet yeah, we don't, you know. And then they used the real locomotive too, like you're saying. I had a 
a memory, maybe it being somewhat miniature and all that, but maybe that was from Under Siege 2 or something. But yeah, yeah they used... And that's something that John Frankenheimer did in an amazing movie, Burt Lancaster movie called The Train, where it takes place in World War II, black and white. And he used he had the cloud back then to say we're using real locomotives for every freaking crash we do. And it's it's amazing to think that, but they said it would be cheaper to 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 use a real locomotive. So it looks amazing than you know freaking t-boning a bus at forty miles an hour with a with a freight train. It, it comes out great. So it was just such. Yeah, and it, it, it's another thing too. It's like these movies now. You know, we see, we've seen so much. We're so almost like desensitized to all this. So it's hard to put to to put into perspective for people who may not have been alive at that time or you know remember it. It's like this was amazing seeing some sort of spectacle as this. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was it was an action. You know, even though it's a thriller, it was a, that action scene was like was literally the best thing you'd seen. You know, up to date. You know, today. You know, we're looking at everything at in HD. You know, I feel like a lot of these effects and these flaws that we kind of, you know, we saying that earlier that the sh the shot, you know, you can tell the difference. Once that shot comes, like the image quality is different. You can tell that it's an effect shot. But I think when we were young, one you either saw it at the movies and you saw it like one time on the big screen. It looked great back and it was then. On a, yeah, and it was like blown up the size of like a house. At, but then when we're watching on on VHS, the like the resolution of VHS was so poor. We didn't know that at the time. But like you're watching on like a tube TV 480i, <laughs> you know, well, like an 18 to 19 inch screen. Yeah, you and, know. But also like VHS, the image quality was so much less smooth and beautiful. As Isn't it is that in weird? You think about that though, like like you know that kind of helped the experience in a way because we un un inadvertently didn't know that the, that you know that was the quality that we accepted and took it for granted. And who knew there could be anything better because that's what we grew up with, and it looked just fine. You didn't go home, you know, and watch TV and be like, you know, the picture at the movies is so much clearer. It was just <laughs> that's what it is, and it's interesting how it helped not thematically, but almost in, you know, kind of like blending the effect. It's almost like taking like a clear coat and putting it over the final paint job you did, you know, and it kind of just added something so that you're right. You didn't see kind of so much of the, uh, all the impurities. I mean, certainly if you had processed shots and sometimes you see like that green outline around certain things, oh, you could tell, but a lot of times the lack of technology kind of helped disguise some of the impurities you'd get from effect shots or whatever the case would be. And then we just took for granted and it helped, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about that filmmakers. yesterday before we started recording, I was telling Dion that I was watching devil's reign and, uh, sweet, you know, where they don't have the eyes and devil, the eyes are gone in devil's reign. Like on, even in DVD, but especially in like Blu-ray or in HD, you can see that there's just like, you know, a black, cloth or something over their eyes and then make yeah, some sort of netting that they can see out yeah and i wonder, almost like had, the um ninja turtles remember the foot they had those things <laughs> you know it's kind of like that we did a whole podcast we, we he, he started talking about that and we talked for 25 minutes on devil's reign that could have been a supplemental if we were recording um but uh yeah i was thinking yesterday like i bet you on vhs you never you didn't see that like it was so much less noticeable that it was like netting it probably it was, was just like it probably was just like black contrasted. The contrast was such that it probably just looked like black holes. The holes, yeah. And then your TV, you know, the, with the on a tube television, watching it, you know, however big your TV screen is, it's just such a 
I don't know. It's all this is just, it's so amazing to think of how far we've come and then just, you know, seeing these things now. And it's just, uh, you know, back, just even the education of the audience and the, you know, the, the, the expectations of a regular film goer now are so different, you know, that we'd accept certain, you see that in earlier movies in the fifties and sixties, you accept certain storylines. It's like, ah, that's fun. That'll happen. You know, and, and certain effects like this, you know, it's just, you never knew any, you weren't any wiser when you were little watching something on the television that there was, you know, that you were losing out on whatever, even look at something as rudimentary as like, you know, the, um, aspect ratio, you know, it never occurred to me until people started telling us about what DVDs did, you know, about the, it being two, three, five or one, three, five, as opposed to four, three or whatever. I still um, think, I still think about that. Cause there's like movies that like I'll revisit or I'll see for the first time since I was a kid or whatever. And I think to myself, like, huh, like, even though I saw this movie and I love this movie, this is the first time I'm seeing this movie in widescreen. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, think about how we grew up watching something like The Thing on, yeah, a, you know, on a box, you know, square. Yeah. And then you see, or, or any Carpenter movie for that matter, it's always like two. You're losing five. like 50% of the image. Um, but with that said. The, the effect still looks great, even on Blu-ray. You can tell but it still looks great but there's also something really nostalgic about when we see you know the the wires or whatever or whatever it is you know there's something yeah the way that optical printing looks there's something very nostalgic about it for me when i watch it you know like that's just the way kind of things were um and i wonder if that lands now for people our age find nostalgia in that if people younger than us find that as a detriment people look at it in like you know kind of like you know it's like looking at the ray, ray harryhausen stop motion animation or any kind of stop motion for the most part you kind of like oh well i wonder if people look at it now and just like you know that's not what i'm used to of you know looking at a video game or whatever the heck now yeah because even the stuff that's done today i mean like the you know you just texted me about a movie but also like Guillermo toro's pinocchio i mean that's stop animation but it's not the same. I mean, it's smoother than the stuff we grew up watching. Um, yeah. And whether they tweak it in post with effects or just like they're not shooting it on film anymore. So it's not really like a frame by frame. You know, it's not the same, you know, like, <laughs> like shooting one picture at a time. It's still digital to a certain extent, even if it's just what's capturing it. Um, yeah. It's just, it's a different, everything's changing. And even though some of the old stuff was uh, more crude, we didn't know that. And so when we look at it now, it's there is something kind of uh, nostalgic and beautiful about some of the things way uh, some of the ways things are were done. But uh, bef before we launch into all like the nooks and crannies of this thing, uh, let's go over like the personnel. We brought up uh, the director already. Andrew Davis. Andrew Davis. Uh, great track record leading up to this movie. <laughs> From the 1980s. He's already, already been on the podcast. Already been on the podcast. He's already come over and slept over. Uh, I, you know, either from the 1983 slasher movie, The Final Terror, to the Chuck Norris classic Code of Silence, to Above yeah. the Law, Under Siege. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Guy's got a great uh, sleepover uh, resume. So and we covered Above the Law. Did we cover Above the Law here? Or was it? No, we didn't cover Above the Law. We did March for Duff. Ah, 
we did marked for death but i talked a lot about above the law and you're like you should have did above the law and i was like because it was but and um so that's why i say he he's been on the podcast before because we brought him up because uh those movies he's a very chicago-centric director and you have code of silence there's a movie called the package he did with gene hackman and tom lee jones and then he did above the law with steven seagal he did on he did then the package with Tommy Lee Jones and Gene Hackman. Then he does another one with Tommy Lee Jones under siege with Seagal, of course. And right after that, he follows under siege up with this with Tommy Lee Jones, um, the fugitive. So, and I've always loved him. You know, like I said, Joe was just saying before about I, I love the openings and his action style. And um, uh, I love having, I always, I'm a big fan of having cities be kind of like characters in the film and i always thought this is a chicago centric movie and it's like almost like i'm looking for like you know cold check the night stalker or i'm looking for the blues brothers or father dowling in the background because it's so believable as chicago and i and i think he has a really good a grasp of like um geography as well you know like his scenes you know a lot of like you know uh you could see what's going on you know where you are in certain senses and stuff just like the orientation and i think he's a great action director you know and and helming something like this really works yeah i mean under siege was my to my recollection like a big breakout movie even for seagal even though he had made a bunch of well liked action movies i felt like under siege was like it was his pinnacle like each one was bigger at the time you know above the law put him on the map heart to kill was a cool follow-up mark for death was really cool out for justice was awesome. And then you get under siege and then he's the height. That's the yeah, highest he probably I ever feel like raised. that was like a big, I was also a big like box office success under siege. Well, it also put Tommy Lee Jones officially kind of on the map. He'd been acting for almost two decades, but it kind of put his name in everyone's home as opposed to hey, it's that guy from yeah. like freaking, uh, you know, eyes of Laura Mars or that movie with Sissy Spacek. You know what I mean? I think for people in our, of our generation, either under siege or, the fugitive were like the, were our introduction to Tommy Lee Jones for a lot of us. Certainly Absolutely, was for me, yeah. and even yeah. And I think even for me, even though I had seen Under Siege when I saw The Fugitive, and then it was like Tommy Lee Jones, he ended up winning the Academy Award. All of a sudden, Tommy Lee Jones is like a bona fide movie star. Uh, yeah, it was like oh, he's the guy. He's the bad guy in Under Siege. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it wasn't even like. Oh, this character's the guy. The guy who plays this character is the guy from Under Siege. It was like, it was like, oh, that this guy wasn't Under Siege. Also, like, it wasn't like even though you had seen Under Siege, it didn't register that this guy was Tommy Lee Jones until this movie. For me, anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. The shots of Boston. I mean, I'm not, uh, Chicago, definitely. Uh, all like this stuff going over the city. I like the helicopter shots over the city. Yeah. The sense of like, you know, there's this guy, this ant in like this big, you know, this, this one guy trying to survive in this big city with all these people, people looking for him. Uh, definitely great writers. Apparently this movie had like something like nine screenwriters over five year period, something like 25 versions of the movie had been written. Um, and ultimately, like it said that there wasn't even really, uh, there was never really like a, a full fledged final draft, but the people who That's get crazy that they don't even have like a locked shooting script. They just start shooting 
and then they're kind of really improvising on the day, ad-libbing scenes or lines and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. That's incredible. But that's the- <laughs> incredible for a movie of this size, you know. It's like the it's like Kubrick doing the shining. It's like you're doing rewrites on set. And since you have everybody in it, you you're able to do that where you couldn't do that, you know, just a regular movie or starting out. But the two writers who get credit who get credit are um Jeb Stewart, who uh, was one of the right he had co written one of the writers on Die Hard, Leviathan, Lock Up, nice. one of my favorite movies. Nice. Uh, another 48 Hours. But he also had written, he also directed Next of Kin, the Patrick Swayze movie, and he had, he co-wrote and directed Fire Down Below. So a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of Seagull. So solid, solid entries in there, yeah. And uh, the other guy is, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, David Twohey. T W O H Y is what I have. That sounds great. Um, he had written Critters 2, the main course, Warlock, wow. Terminal Velocity, Waterworld. He wrote and directed Timescape, The Arrival, uh, Pitch Black, and the other Riddick movies. But uh, Andrew Davis says Andrew Davis said uh, that he never actually met that writer and that uh, that writer's main contribution to the script was the was the train crash yeah Uh, when it gets into like who gets credited and all this stuff it's it all comes down to like the writers guild and i don't fully understand it's like a certain percentage of what you came up with creatively if that certain percentage is left into the script into the what becomes in the movie then you get credit even though Maybe you just wrote that one scene. <laughs> you know, it's all confusing. I know there's all kinds of rules when it comes to the Writers Guild. There's like and sometimes that's to the detriment or better because sometimes the, you know, me and you can write a movie and then we sell it and then three other people come in and rewrite it and tear it apart, but they don't get the credit because they didn't do like the allotted Screenwriters Guild demands of saying that they get an, a, a credit and then the movie comes out and the movie stinks. It's not our movie, but we get blamed. Yeah, you know, yeah. so there's a you know, so it's like, the, and then you hear all the time of people, oh, Joe Blow, Jim Cameron came in and did a you know un you know uncredited draft or whatever. You hear all these you know these stories of whatever of these scripts. Yeah, there's all kinds of things, but apparently went through many iterations. One draft of the script allegedly had Tommy Lee Jones, his character Gerard is the one that hired the one armed man. Because, <laughs> because uh, uh, allegedly uh, something happened with Tommy Lee Jones's Gerard's wife died on the operating table. Oh, God. You know, and so all kinds of craziness ha- ensues. And it's also, it's all alleged, you know, like we. Well, is- also there was a novelization of this, which I didn't realize. I might own it, but I didn't realize until we were well in. So I didn't get to read it for prep. So I wonder if any of this, <clears throat> if any of these prior drafts, the novelization kind of fills in like about his wife or whatever, you know, anything like that. That's a, that's a good point. There's also apparently, uh, allegedly, again, uh, can't ever, you can't always trust the internet. Apparently there was a storyline involving Julianne Moore's character. Did you see this online? Yeah, they, that they were going to kind of <clears throat> make it a little more, 
he was going to go back to her for help in the scenes. Because I completely forgot Julianne Moore was in this movie. So when she comes up in the credits at the beginning, I was like, holy crap. And I was like, who the hell is she playing in this movie? Because I didn't even remember that scene. So it came in and she's looking all spanky and, you know, all nice. And I was like, oh, look at her. And she's only in it for that scene. But they say online that, that there was going to be, he was going to come back and begrudgingly get her help. And evidently they made a shot some of this stuff. And there was going to be maybe a casual love interest, but and that's the reason why her she's a little kind of like co-star build. But some of that stuff was left on the editing room floor. But um, I kind of, I guess I'm in a way a little glad. I mean, maybe it would have worked great, but I like how it is as it is. You know, I don't know if that would have just stopped the momentum for having like having, it's like Schwarzenegger talking about in Predator, like the producers and director, you know, they wanted him to like have a love interest with the woman they find he's like what am i gonna do go in the bushes and have like a love scene with her it's like it's not about that you know it's yeah, like yeah so i, I kind of like how they left it out well, you know, that i mean i think it's twofold in this i mean it's like yes it was slow adding more stuff adding more meat to the thing you got more you have to trim away the fat you know it ends yeah. up slowing down what is like a beautifully paced you know like roller coaster ride of a movie but then you also have the fact that like this guy's wife was just murdered <laughs> He's just looking for some side, you know. He's like, hey, you know, heart wants uh, what the heart wants. Yeah, um, I, a man has, you know, a man has a lot of wants, but not to have needs, you know. But apparently, uh, you know, the 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 script was never locked. There was a lot of stuff being rewritten, even by Harrison Ford. Apparently, and Harrison Ford and Jane Lynch's scene, uh, you know. Harrison Ford didn't like the dialogue, so he and Jane Lynch kind of rewrote the dialogue for that scene. Apparently, a lot of what Tommy Lee Jones says was just kind of like made up by Tommy Lee Jones on the spot. Um, one I, of think, the, I forgot Jane Lynch was even in it. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know who she was at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's a very good point. <laughs> but when I came back, I was like, is that who I think it is? So it was just yeah. it was a funny scene. Some- and then they say that about the love interest too that they might have had a love interest or so i don't know how much you know it's like jesus he said any female that's coming into his life he's <laughs> they're speculating he may have a yeah, potential, potential love, love interest. interest you know he is single now for christ's sakes one thing that i did read and again i don't know if it's true that i thought was really interesting was that the interrogation scene in the beginning of the movie that uh when they did that scene harrison ford didn't have the script or he didn't have he did so he didn't know what they were going to ask it was almost like it was ad-libbed they they went in there and they just kind of like did a uh kind of like a uh, uh like a uh, improv segment yeah so he just had to kind of answer these questions in character and that's added to like the authenticity of like his uncomfortableness and kind of like fumbling around with answers which i thought was interesting and kind of like a great like a fun a great move, a good instinct. If that was well, that's the a, case, there's another thing about I, what I, I liked about this growing up because I had seen Above the Law so many times as a kid, and it being an Andrew Davis film, there's a lot of Chicago centric actors that you see appear in a lot of kind of Chicago based movies. And those two guys who are the cops, the guy, one guy, Ron Dean, who's the white haired, like he could play older Sinatra, you know, in like his later years, and then the other guy with the mustache and glasses, uh, Joseph F. Kosala, um, the latter Kosala, if I'm saying that right, was a real cop, and you could completely see that. And both of them are both in the original. They're both in Above the Law, and there are a bunch of other stuff that you'd see around the time. And uh, Kosala plays a cop in Above the Law, uh, and Ron Dean, who's a character actor, plays I think one of his relatives in that. But it's funny in the beginning of the movie 
we have those two guys who are above the law alumni because of Andrew Davis. When they're sitting in the courtroom and um, uh, Harrison Ford's defense team, you have his lawyer with the glasses. Then there's a guy next to the lawyer. That's an actor who I feel like they, they were going to give him a line, but they might have cut it. He is from above the law. He is, I think, like the district attorney or somebody in the above the law. Uh, there's a, a, a handful of other people who I, I'm forgetting right now who are in above the law. And then at the very end of the movie, when they're on the L and Harrison Ford is recognized by the guy reading the paper, the Spanish guy who goes and tells the cop he's an above the law. And he's a guy that Steven Seagal runs down and beats the crap out of. And at some point, I think with the whole machete sequence where the guys in the car kind of try to get Steven Seagal and he kills them all and runs a guy down. Um, so there's a lot of alumni in this movie that are from the, uh, you know, Andrew Davis, Chicago troupe of acting there. And, and those two guys are, are the two cops are one of them. And I love that guy. That guy talks like this, you know, Nico Toscani, you know, with the glasses, or <laughs> Joseph Casal. And they're so, I never realized watching the movie, when you watch it now, they're so kind of, they portray the cops in such a bad light where they're just in, not incompetent, but they're just like, he did it. And who the, stop, don't open our case. <laughs> screw you. It's closed. We wrote it off. It's off the board. And, you know, we're never going to say about it again. Uh, producer Arnold Copelson. Uh, he was an executive executive producer on Porky's and a lot of low budget film, um, including Warlock. But he also produced Platoon, Out for Justice. Falling Down, Outbreak, Seven, Eraser, Devil's Advocate, all kinds of great sleepover fare. Uh, director of photography, Michael Chapman, shot. You know, he was originally a camera operator on things like The Godfather yeah. and Jaws, but he shot uh, Taxi Driver, The Last Waltz, a movie that Dion and I love, the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Hardcore, yeah. Raging Bull, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is yeah. us. Uh, another movie we covered on here, The Lost Boys, Shoot to Kill, one of your dad's favorite movies, if I recall. Oh, I love that movie. Great movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scrooged, uh, Kindergarten Cop, Doc Hollywood, one of my faves. And uh, his last movie that he shot was 2007's Bridge to Terabithia, which was based on the Catherine oh, Patterson yeah. book that many of us read. Uh, in our in our young days, and he also directed the movie All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise, which I thought was interesting because that's a that's kind of a weird movie that I happen to have watched again recently and been like, this is a weird movie. Um, yeah, and of course, and it's shot it's it's great, beautifully shot. I think in the sense of I think they said they fired the first DP for whatever reason. And Andrew Davis, I think, has credits as a cinematographer on some of the things. The director um, in bringing. Chapman in is his name. It, it's yeah. it's he great job. I mean, like the whole staging of the train sequence at the beginning, and then also just really the um the kind of the uh, the uh, scenes and all that kind of language, and us knowing where everything is. And I was sh I think you know I think it's shot like I said before how you always have a location orientation within the locations and stuff like that. And I think they shoot it really well. And I'm never kind of questioning what's going on or where are they exactly. You know, and it's, so I think it's very effective how we shot it. And I think he also said, you know, uh, we do our research that they didn't get along really. And uh, a lot of, you know, uh, Davis and the DP at the time. And there was some tension, but he's glad now he did it and all that kind of a thing. But yeah. I think he does a superb job in it. And I also heard that he gave, you know, he gives credit to Davis for being the one that really helped establish Chicago as a character in the movie. Like he, he's like, he's the yeah. one, he's the director is really the one 
that you need to credit for the way Chicago yeah. well, was shot. He was from Chicago, yeah. So and it's great that it's a brutal winter, too. They were worried about shooting it there in the cold. But I think that adds to it, you know, and then, like, it being the St. Patrick's Day Parade. We, we That would have been great. We This could have been a St. Paddy's Day movie had we been thinking of all this. I hadn't thought about it being we could have put it out as a Paddy's Day release. Um, could do a and, whole uh, series of. St. Patrick's Day movies. <laughs> for parade um, and movies. then even though there's the scene, there's a historic district of Chicago that they shoot some of this in. And it's where the one-armed man lives. And when he's when he's escaping out of his house, and, or maybe when, it's when Harrison Ford leaves and he's trying to walk down the road, uh, down, the, down near the corner where you see the fire trucks coming, I swear that's the same corner uh, where, the, where the convenience store is, that in Above the Law, the, the guys kind of like um, ambush um, Seagal and they shoot up his car with machine guns and then he kind of ta- you know disarms them, brings them into the bodega and then he beats the crap out of them and destroys the bodega. I swear that's the same block because it's this historic district, you know. So they shoot it in such a way that you almost recognize, you know, other sections and stuff. That you it really gives you a good example of you know how things look and it's you know it's really recognizable, which I think is awesome. And I love have again that that they have. Chicago plays such a good influence with the uh, above ground train and all the uh, uh, high elevation train. It's it's awesome. Yeah, and uh, great score by James Newton Howard, whose uh, kind of film scoring debut, feature length film scoring debut, was 1984's Dune. But wow. uh, he's did all kinds of movies, everything from Major League and Pretty Woman to Flatliners and marked for death a lot of a lot of people go um on this one. yeah well you know i mean he was big at the time they're they all bouncing around you know it, and it's warner brothers too actually isn't this warner brothers i can't remember maybe if this is warner Brothers, because seagal was kind of had a, i think a five picture deal with warner brothers because i think all those beginning are warner brothers movies so maybe it's all you know in the in the family or whatever i don't know but the the the, the composer had kind of Missed feelings, right, about it when he came in. He kind of was, like, worried that it wasn't a great score or he was listening to, like, the temp music that they put in, Jerry Goldsmith, and he was kind of like, I don't know if I can raise it as heights. And, you know, everybody, everybody, like you said, in this movie kind of were like, wow, I don't know if this is really going to do any good <laughs> while we do it. But we, like, Tommy Lee Jones evidently said that to, what's his face, Joey Catalano. Uh, uh, he was like, I don't know, we'll, we'll see how this goes. And then it ends up, you know, he wins a, a Best Supporting Oscar for it or something, you know, so. Yeah. And everything's nominated. But uh, Howard's kind of one of the contemporary greats. Uh, uh, even back then, 90s was big for him. Falling Down, Dave. But he also did The Dark Knight and uh, the Hunger Game movies in the 2000s. And, uh, you know, we said the cast. Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, both great. Uh, Celia Ward, uh, beautiful yeah. as always. And a small yeah. part as uh, Helen Kimball. She was... Uh, popular because of la law right i think um uh, yeah uh joe pantaleano familiar face even even then you know yeah even the goonies he was big you know goonies all the yeah. right moves uh midnight run which is also kind yeah. of a, a, a chicago centric at least at least yeah. bookmarks the movie chicago centric <laughs> um but uh great ensemble cast of the U.S. Marshals. Uh, you and I were just, yeah. Daniel Roebuck. He, he um, were just talking about Daniel Roebuck recently. Yeah, yeah. Off, Daniel Roebuck. Um, even the guy, what's his face, who who looks like Christoph Waltz, um, Jerome Car- Carby. I'm saying his name wrong. The guy who plays Doctor Nichols. Um, it's sad that they had Richard Jordan, and we had Richard Jordan on the podcast for Raise the Titanic. 
he was the lead in that. And Richard Jordan, I think, is in maybe, is he in for Hunt for Red October maybe around this time? And then he he came on and they shot some of it with Richard Jordan, but then he had to bow because he was ill and he had a brain tumor and actually passed away. And he passed away a couple weeks after this movie was actually released. But he was supposed to be the cast as, um, what's his face, Nichols, the yeah. doctor, Charles Nichols, who ends up being the antagonist, the, the you know, spoiler alert at the end, the bad guy. Yeah, that's tragic. Yeah, apparently they even shot with him. They had to do some reshoots because uh, he had the ballot because he was, like Deanne said, uh, diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, that stinks. Yeah, he's also, isn't he in Logan's Run also? He's definitely, yeah, for, yeah definitely that was his claim to fame. Very definite, the familiar face. Um, yeah. And then you, he's one of those guys you forget, like, oh, what happened to him? And it's like, oh, that's why he passed away. That's why, you know, because he was there in the 70s and through the 80s and he was a recognizable face like so many people, like a Jeff Bridges almost. And then... You know, he died. I would love that. That would beget you a special edition. If you've got the scenes with him, throw them on, you know, uh, 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 I don't know. Do people buy Blu-rays anymore? Throw it on a special edition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know maybe I mean? they can't. Maybe That'd be cool. a sag thing. I don't know. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, the guy who ends up playing that character, of Dr. Charles Nichols, who's a you know close friend of Richard Kimball's and ends up, like the end said, spoiler alert, <laughs> the antagonist. Oh, you've seen the movie. Uh He's been on the podcast before. Another name that's hard to say, Jeroen Krabbe. Yeah. Uh, he's in our first episode. Yeah. He's the he's in the Punisher. mob boss, oddly enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was the 80s, you know. In the Punisher. Yeah. Yeah, he's in that. Um, and he's in. He's one of these guys who's in a score of other movies that yeah. you kind of like, you know, probably forget. You you get him mixed up with the guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, the other guy that's like the yeah, other archaeologist, super familiar face. I think kind of great casting for this because I don't know where he's from. He sounds like he might be Swiss or German like, or something, like Eastern European. He like, definitely you know. has like an accent, but he's like yeah, good enough looking, looks the part, upper class. For sure. Yeah. Like in everything he plays, he kind of plays like that kind of like upper class. So he kind of he totally reads believable for and for the plot of for the plot of the movie. I remember watching this, you know, because that's what's I think genius about the story is that, you know, like a 12, 13 year old kid watching this is going to get sucked right in and is going to be able to follow the whole progression of what's going on. You don't have to be like, what's happening here? So I remember the story working so well for me, at least. That by the time we get to that third act and we find out there's the realization that he's actually the bad guy, like in, in typical Giallo or like, you know, Hitchcockian fashion, I'm like, <gasps> you know, it kind of, I didn't see it coming. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was kind of like they had established these characters. They set him up that he's trying to help him out. It even leads to a scene where he lies for Kimball and to, to, to Tommy Lee Jones and Tommy Lee G Jones calls him on it. And he kind of, so through the whole story until maybe that third act, you kind of feel like he's on. You know, it's it. To me, it didn't really seem like oh, it's uh, they cast somebody that recognizable in here. He must be the bad guy for no other reason except that it's a famous person in that role. Yeah. You know, you kind of felt like he was helping Kimball out, and so it's a great subtle way of then at the by the end. You know, it's not just casting. It's like oh, that's why he he's the bad guy. You know, it worked for me. It really paid off. Yeah, it there's so much of this. This movie's kind of brilliant in that way you know like it's just yeah. everything just kind of works um other casting things no it's hard to say because it seems like when you watch things like the special features it seems like they always wanted harrison ford 
Harrison Ford had read the script a bunch of times until they finally found how to draft that they that he was like, okay, it's close enough that this could be a good movie. But allegedly, again, internet rumors, uh, many actors auditioned, which is also kind of unbelievable to me to use the word auditioned as opposed to just be considered Nick Nolte, Alec Baldwin, Michael Douglas, and Kevin Costner. Uh, for the uh, Sam Gerard U.S. Marshall character that Tommy Lee Jones plays, apparently uh, Gene Hackman and John Voight were considered for that part. Although it seems like, but there was also another director attached at some point. So maybe that's, this was all, especially well, the Tommy Lee two. What's that? Oh, no, for finish him, sorry. Finish I was going to say, so maybe like if Gene Hackman and John Voight were in fact considered for Gerard, maybe that was before Andrew Davis came aboard because certainly this was like the third movie that Andrew Davis had done with Tommy Lee Jones. So yeah, maybe, and he kind of knew what he was getting. Maybe it was like once Andrew Davis kind of came aboard, he was like, okay, I'll do it, but Tommy Lee Jones was going to play the <laughs> same Gerard. I had read initially that Walter Hill was attached and then he wanted Nick Nolte in it as Kimball, but then Nick Nolte said, I'm kind of too old to play the role. And then I don't know how, if, if that's true or not, that kind of fell through. And then they were there with Alec Baldwin because at the time, think of Alec Baldwin's in Hunt for Red October. He's in the remake of The Getaway. So he's kind of the shadow. He's doing these kind of movies at the time. And then, you know, they bring Harrison Ford in. You know, watching it cold without looking at the what ifs, I was saying, you know who would have been a good person in the role of Tommy Lee Jones would have been Al Pacino. You know, Al Pacino pre-heat, you know, but him doing that heat kind of thing, you know, you know, what do we got? You know, walking around like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't care. I didn't you know? kill. <laughs> oh, they're talking about no, 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 it's Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee. <laughs> I don't care. He could have did everything. He could have did both. You know, it's Pacino with Pacino, and he does both sides. It's Pacino with long hair <laughs> as, as you know, I didn't kill him, and he's like, I don't care. You know? <laughs> Give me De, what you got. De Niro you know? in Richard Kimball's part and Pacino. Yeah, and then it, with the long hair and having to cut stuff like that. And then they brought Harrison Ford in. But, yeah, it's, it's you know, the Gene Hackman, which I think I could have been good. John Voight as Tommy Lee, both those Tommy Lee Jones. That would have worked. Yeah, you know, I could um, totally see Gene some Hackman. Somebody's what if. Like, kill it. Kill you know? that part. Yeah. I could, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Because he does it later, like an enemy of the state or um, Crimson Tide. You know, I mean, I mean, this is all kind of the fodder for that time of them. And uh, even Kevin Costner, you know, as Richard Kimball, or you know, they say he left to go do Wyatt Earp. Michael Douglas was considered, but he was maybe starting to do Falling Down. You know, you have a lot of other people at the time that were, you know, these people that were considered, or they thought about, or they they were it was offered, and they never say if they took it or not or why, but. Certainly, I think it well, again, like we said, it was a stroke of genius bringing in Harrison Ford because he brings the gravitas. But I, I don't know if any other person at the time, even like Kevin Costner, Nick Nolte, or Alec Baldwin could have brought, you know, I mean, because Harrison Ford was such a beloved uh, actor because of those iconic roles he'd already done to date. And then he was known, as we've discussed before, to do stuff out of the box. He would go do something like a frantic or he would do like witness or he would do later on i think the next year brilliant for me patriot games he re, you know he plays jack ryan in that so you know it's it's you're used to seeing him outside those big iconic roles but then he still does a good you know regarding henry or whatever that is you know it's like it's you still get those great little side projects he does so yeah i mean all the great casting all the people mentioned on like the what if list they're all great i mean yeah yeah absolutely a very different it would have been fun movies a very different performance than uh, what Harrison Ford would have done. I kind of feel this is a, definitely a movie where, like, yeah, like, 
you can kind of get a sense of what everybody else would have done with it. But when you watch this movie, it just seems like Harrison Ford for me was like the perfect guy. And it's hard to imagine somebody yeah. else carrying this movie as well as he does. Um, because like a Jeff Bridges could have been good. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> you know, you know, like the frantic, ah, you know, it's like him doing like his blown away. Remember that couple of years later with Tommy Lee Jones? Yeah. You know, why well, do you know, remember? Like do, do you remember when Tommy Lee Jones got the, got, got the Academy Award? Do you, did you watch Academy Award? Yeah. I, then? Yeah. But I don't remember. Then he had like, I feel, he, my recollection is that he had like a, his head was shaved in like a male pattern baldness. And it was like, oh, I didn't know Tommy Lee Jones was like that bald. And I think it was yeah. because he was shooting Blown Away. And that, oh, and that and he character was, playing that was guy. bald. So he showed up like in a tux with like, you know, bald, but with like hair on the sides and the back. Yeah, because he's shooting. Because I think he was in the middle of shooting Blown Away when the Academy Awards in were Boston. around. Well, that's funny you say that because it's like um, Harrison Ford talks about it. One of the reasons, of course, that he was looking for a role like this is because he wanted to look different. He wanted to not, you know, <clears throat> we talked about that with, I think in Blade Runner, he talks about he was looking to do a movie that didn't have him in a fedora like he had seen on Indiana Jones. So he's always looking to try to change his image as much as he can. So he wanted to have a movie where he can grow his beard out. And, uh, you know, he has the beard at the beginning of this movie. And, and, and it's, I think it's a great device that he's a doctor, he's a learned man, he's got a beard, and then he has to go on, you know, and then he's able to shave it off. And, you know, and there's a reason dye his hair black in a, in a truck stop bathroom. It's awesome, you know. But uh, he has that beard, and he went and shot the young Indiana Jones I was going to say, movie. I wonder yeah. if this was when he shot the episode of the young Indiana Jones. Yeah, they Jones. said that's why. He, you know, and then they also said because he had shot stuff with Richard Jordan, and Richard Jordan, of course, had got ill, and they had to reshoot some of those scenes. He had to regrow the beard, I guess, near the end, which I don't know how successful you'd be with how short this turnaround was for this movie to be shot because he had to reshoot the she scenes with the new actor playing uh, the um, Nichols character, Dr. Nichols, yeah. near the end. you know. Um, and Harrison Ford, I, I might have brought this up before in the past, but for Doors aficionados out there, it's really weird to see Harrison Ford. We talked about how he got into the business, but he was a cameraman in a lot of um, Doors projects. He was one of the three cameramen at the Hollywood Bowl show, which they taped, and it's a very famous recording. And then they did a doc called Feast of Friends, where I think they toured around in the 68 tour, and they're up in Seattle and Toronto and stuff like that. And Harrison Ford is one of the cameramen there. And there's footage. They released it in the late 90s when this box set came out, this Big Doors box set in 97 when Blake and I were freshmen in high school, or freshmen in college, I mean. And I went and got the box set. And they also, in tandem, released this new video at the time on VHS of this new footage. And it was them, the Doors, playing like um, cards in a hotel room during the day, drinking like Molson's. And Harrison Ford's in the scene where they're like doing clap tests and the cameraman's like, Harry, you're in the shot. And you see him like move over. And then there's another famous shot of Harrison Ford where Jim Morrison, some father or reverend or somebody, it's from the 80s, this footage. If the people know some of those uh, videos they released on the doors and you'd see all this footage, you know, it's kind of limited. And there's one where this father comes before, or reverend before the show to talk to Jim Morrison about religion and, and his music and all that. And you see Harrison Ford there as they like, they walk by, you see him get out of the way. And it's like, it's so crazy that, see, That'd be my first thing to ask Harrison Ford. You know, everyone wants to know about all this stuff. I'd be like, listen, you hung out with Jim Morrison and the doors and all this. Tell me about that crazy thing, you know? And then he was a carpenter on Paul Rothschild's house, which was the famous producer. 
and he was and that's how he he was going to be a carpenter where they they say that story where he was almost going to give up acting and go back into carpentry and he made an addition supposedly on like Paul Rothschild's house and then he was getting deals and he started acting again so i find Harrison Ford and all that kind of stuff just hugely fascinating these little niche things that people don't really know for for you know offhand yeah i mean apparently he grew up in chicago left to go to college in Wisconsin. And, and yeah, in Wisconsin. Which is like right then, next door. And then I guess showed up in LA. Maybe he was pursuing an acting career when he started doing all this weird side jobs filming Doors concerts. But yeah, or just doing like a crew work, I guess. And then doing day job as a carpenter and like building, you know, and doing that, you know. And because uh, he's, I guess it's the mid 70s, he starts kind of putting his mark in and stuff like that. So yeah, he ends up he's, in. Uh, American Graffiti. Yeah. Um, he's in that movie where he walks in. He walks in, in in a hotel. I forget the damn name of the movie. I think it's his first role. He walks into a hotel a hotel lobby and he calls somebody. It says a message for somebody. And then he's also in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Uh, he's in that really funny, uh, little well-known Western. Um, what is it called? The Cincinnati Kid? What's that one with Gene Hackman playing a... Um, the Oklahoma kid, is that it? You know, Gene Hackman's playing the rabbi that comes over from from Europe, and then he kind of gets, you know, kind of uh, hustled, and he kind of meets Harrison Ford. And Harrison, he's going out west, and Harrison Ford has to help him. It's like 1980 or something. It's called, like, the Oklahoma kid or something. It, the Frisco kid, I think it's called. I think it's the Frisco kid, but it's like Sutton people have forgotten. So he did a lot of weird, or Force 10 from Navarone at the time, which was like, you know, uh, the sequel to The Guns of Navarone. He was doing a lot of stuff in that time. Yeah, he also he's in a movie that I I always kind of liked, um, which was like uh, the Star Wars hollow, ho- holiday special, <laughs> <laughs> and it is the Frisco Kid. But um, yeah. he's in a movie that was like Henry Winkler at the height of Fonzie. Henry fame. Winkler. He yeah. did a movie called uh, Heroes, I think it's called with. Um, Sally Field. Yeah. And Harrison Ford. Uh really interesting movie. Um very 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 odd. <laughs> kind of weird like coming of age the way that very very much of like the late 70s era of road movies. Um, yeah, it's weird that that Richard um that uh Henry Winkler at that time you think about he had that height and he did a bunch of movies and he was trying to like get away from the Fonz. Although yeah. didn't he do, is it Lords of Flatbush or what's the one? Is it the, it's this, he's the lone movie. What's he's the one? He's in Lords of Flatbush. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Long. So he's like doing that and he's still kind of playing the greaser part. I think a little bit, but yeah, you think of these other movies where he's trying to play, he doesn't want, he wants to get as far away as from the Fonz as he can. Like he did a TV movie of, um, Scrooge, uh, right? Christmas Carol. Yeah. yeah. Scrooge, which I only watched a couple years ago, which is actually very good. You know, but they, they, I think they dick, dick Smith him up like at the beginning. He's yeah. very old looking with, with cosmetics so that when you go back in time for the different periods, you could see him as young and stuff. So it's very interesting to go down his rabbit hole because then he ended up producing, he produced things like MacGyver and stuff like that in the yeah. 80s. And now he's a prolific writer of like children's books when I ended up meeting him 15 years ago or so. Yeah. Uh, but it's just funny at the time he's doing all these little movies that people you forget about. We think of him as the Fonz, but he was trying to break away from the Fonz and do the other stuff, you know, but like heroes comes heroes might've been a, I think it's called heroes. It might've been a movie where like he made it like Harrison Ford made it 
and then it didn't come out until after Star Wars, maybe. Oh, he's big. So yeah, it was yeah. like, all of a sudden, he was like this They're huge. Like, yes! He was this huge <laughs> star, and now he's got like this. It's not a small part, but it's not, he's not the lead. Um, and it's like it, those De Niro movies, you know, like The Swap or whatever, those movies that he did, like with the, the, the High Mom, those the Palma movies were, they weren't really that big until he became a name, and then they re-release all those things in their public yeah. domain. But uh, definitely recommend Heroes if you're... Want to check? It's 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 not the it's not the happiest movie, but it has some hijinks in it. It's one of those. Yeah, I've mo- always loved Harrison you, Ford. You know, it's one of those weird movies where that's a very trademark of the seventies, where it's like under the guise of like this comedy, but when you like really analyze the plot, like it's really kind of dark. It's, it's probably tragic. <laughs> you know, like, like someone Her- dies of cancer Harrison at the end of it. Or something Ford, like I mean, <laughs> Henry Winkler plays this guy who's like in a men- like a mental institution, and he leaves, and he wants to go find out because he was in, he was in Vietnam and he's got post traumatic stress syndrome and it, but you know they didn't call it back that back then and he wants to go find the guys from like his platoon or whatever oh god and he so it becomes this road movie where he ends up like meeting sally field at like a bus stop but then like just so it's like this weird hijinks like road movie but with, like this underlying like drama and trauma it sounds of, like of, like vietnam <laughs> like, it's, it's like a, it's like you take like the last detail and you cross it with that Harry and Tonto, that Art Carney movie, like the <laughs> Roman and his cat. It's like that's the, and then, and then it has an ending like Easy Rider or something. You yeah, know, like, it's, it's really like, you know, it's, like, very, it's a very strange. You, know, you meet a girl on the road and they sleep together for the first time or whatever. Now they're boyfriend and girls. Like, it's definitely you know, a very weird, like Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Yeah. Um, um, but he had a, but yeah, so Ford was doing a lot of stuff back then. And then it's just fun to think of, uh, you know, he's, yeah. I mean, just to think of the, the career he's had with all these kind of things and this being, you know, we always immediately equate him with either Star Wars or Nina Jones or maybe even Jack Ryan because he did that a couple times. But you forget about The Fugitive. You know, I, I, I had not thought about this movie in 20 years, you know. It's on TV all the time. If you turn to AMC, it's playing or something 24 yeah. hours a day. But that's why we, right when you said it, I was like, yeah, that's the perfect movie for all these reasons we've uh, already kind of nailed down. Yeah, it's definitely a movie that gets a lot of airplay. And it's one of those movies that you can watch every time it's on, <laughs> you know, like can you imagine getting a residual from that. I mean, can you imagine being like, uh, you know, like Tommy Lee Jones or Pantoliano or, or, or I don't know, any, even Harrison Ford every time. I mean, I, I can't, I don't know. I, I don't know how the residuals break down, but if, if, if AMC, if you get a check for every time that's on TV or something like that, that's insane. A yeah. uh, little bit, another bit of alleged trivia. That apparently, uh, maybe during the early on in the movie, Harrison Ford ends up actually hurting his leg ligaments in his leg. Yeah, so he they end up around just making it part of the character that he just has a limp for the rest of the movie. He's always notorious for hurting himself. You know, he hurt his back doing Temple of Doom. He's always, you know, he's he's. I mean, and I guess it's because he's always physical, and it's weird watching this. It's like you you you. I it's never been more apparent to me seeing the Harrison Ford shtick, you know, that where he's like, you know, or, he's, you know, he's waving his hands at you yeah, or he yeah. points a certain way, you know, where he's like, you, you, you fight, you know, it's like, he, you know, he, he has, or he's like, huh? and he looks really like, oh my God, am I going to be able to make it? And I'm not in any way. You yeah, know, this, is all visual, this is all visual stuff. That you do. It's all, yeah, he can't see, he can only see me doing it. It's all but for it's, my you know, benefit. It's like, 
it's like him running around looking frantic or worried or the half smile you, know, you see a lot in Han Solo or like him putting that hand up you find the killer who killed my wife you know and it's like you you really see the full Harrison Ford persona and his acting style come across in this movie then he's and that well he's very physical he's always doing like a lot of his own stunts and stuff like that so of course he's going to end up getting hurt and you know messing himself up in these situations yeah, I mean, I think he's even he like in the stairs, like wrestling with the one-armed man down the stairs and stuff. I think he did that. Yeah. Well, they modeled that apartment after a doctor he shadowed, like because he played a doctor in Frantic, um, the uh, Plansky movie, and then he did this, and he walked, he shadowed a doctor for a couple of weeks in Chicago, and then I guess when they went to the doctor's house, this apartment, they're like, this is really snazzy looking, and him and Andrew Davis are like, let's like model his house after this. So they modeled it after that surgeon's house, and. He's a vascular surgeon in this movie. In the original series, he was a pediatrician. And, the, and the, uh, one of the interesting differences is in the in the original series, they set up that like Kimball could have did it because he was a pediatrician. He was known for getting into arguments with his wife the night before uh, the night. I think they they got into an, uh, that his wife died. Neighbors uh, heard them arguing and that's where the David Jansen character Richard Kimball left to go take a walk to cool off. And when he came back, his wife was murdered. In this movie, the Harrison Ford movie, he's a vascular surgeon. Little different. I like that he's a he's you know like a really fancy surgeon as opposed to just a you know day to day pediatrician. Not to knock pediatricians, no. And that you know it they it's a surprise because I remember like you know seeing this in the theater whenever the first time you saw this when they're doing the brilliant device of showing the exposition through flashback of like certainly in the courtroom that scene when um you know uh she picks up the phone while she's bleeding out with the concussion blunt force trauma trying to call like i remember like that's heartbreaking that was really like tough stuff to watch yeah. at the time you know you're like oh my god you're like almost crying for harrison ford so i like how they set that up where you know they don't put any doubt in well i, I guess they never put doubt in your head but I like they changed it a little bit for him to be in a higher. So he's almost like the Tom Cruise from Eyes Wide Shut. He's in a higher tax bracket. He's making a lot of money. And that kind of bounces with the pharmaceutical company who's in the pediatrics they show. And then, you know, it kind of ties up in the end that it becomes this corporate espionage movie. Yeah. As opposed to in the original series, you find out in the season finale, you finally find out that the one-armed man kills his wife. It's just opportunity because he was a burglar. He was burglaring the house. And then the wife was there and he kill, ends up killing the wife. And there's some other plot points where somebody witnessed it and all, you know, because for four seasons, you have to keep it involved, you know, but in this one, it's just, it's kind of, it sets it up beautifully. Like he had to go out and do surgery. He comes home and I don't know why he couldn't have just somehow backtracked his steps. So I've been in surgery until 4am. I come home and she, I guess it just happened because he fought with, so I guess it's conceivable. He had the time to could have killed her, but you know, uh, I love all that, that he catches it, nobody sees it, it's the one our man, and that's done really well, and then this, you know, and you, you think of how maddening that would be, trying to hunt down a one our man, and how he does it, he goes through the prosthetic, you know, it's because he's a doctor, it's like, it's, what a way to get around it, and get into it, and then find the guy, you know, to narrow yeah. it down. The thing is, it is a, the thing about it is, I mean, one, it's a great quirk of the story that's that's in the series, and also in the movie, but it's also like when he's being interrogated, and they're like, you killed basically trying to get him to confess to kill his wife. It seems like a really weird like detail to lie about. <laughs> yeah, but this guy had a what? What do you have a hook? Did he have some sort of hook there or something like that? Or what do you do? What do you? He's like, no, it wasn't a hook. It was you know, 
yeah, it's very something that, you know. But yeah, uh, I agree. The, the, her death scene with the phone and all that, that kind of replays during the courtroom. It's, it is heartbreaking. It's traumatic. Like it's yeah. very, it's very, uh, it's, troubling. It's, it's rough. Like it's, it's, it's disturbing. It's a rough, it's a rough scene. Yeah. Um, of course, 1998 had the spinoff U.S. Marshals, which I think I, which I think I did see at the movies, but I, th- I think it's. The I might have saw it with you. We we might have saw it. At the end. Yeah, maybe we saw that together. Because um, I remember seeing that, and I haven't really seen it since. I remember liking it when I saw it, but I didn't realize someone had pointed out to me that there's the big sequence where Denzel, not Denzel Washington, excuse me, Wesley Snipes, is jumping off a building and he jumps onto a train that's at 125th street in park avenue that's at the 125th metro north station so he gets on a building and does that leap and swings and jumps onto a train heading out to up to up north of the bronx and westchester and you know of course when we saw it in high school or whatever that was in college i didn't realize that's where that was so there's a whole so i love again these set pieces where it's identifiable you know places you may know if you live in chicago or in u.s marshals in new york because that happens everywhere um, and I thought it was a worthy follow-up. I mean, it stinks that Harrison Ford wasn't in the movie, but at the same time, you can understand why, because he kind of solved the case. There's no reason that we need to bring him out unless, you know, something happens again and he's back on the run. Yeah. But it's but just I, like it, it <laughs> opens a door that's a furthering adventures of the U.S. Marshals. Yeah, but I do remember it when it was, like, coming out. It was like, wait, it's a sequel to The Fugitive, but Harrison Ford's not in it? <laughs> How are you going to do that? It's about, it's <laughs> it's about Tommy Lee Jones' character? Yeah, like that group of guys. I remember, like, I remember uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s in it too. You know, it's like he, it was kind of a point in his career where he was doing a lot of different things at the time and he kind of troubles with the law or substance abuse. So, you know, he plays a really interesting character in the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, he's on the um, U.S. Marshall side. Um, I remember enjoying that. You know, I remember liking it too. I remember thinking it was better than I thought it was going to be because, like I said, it's a a weird, it's a weird sales pitch. Yeah. It's like, and that was at the height of um, then of uh, I keep saying Denzel, Jesus, Wesley Snipes' career because he had just come off Blade, uh, maybe around then, or and Demolition Man, you know, murder at uh sixteen hundred. So he was he was on a really high, you know, um, uh, Passenger Fifty Seven. You know, he was a really bankable star at that time as well. Yeah, I mean, it's like I mean, it's the equivalent of like after Raiders of the Lost Ark, they were like, we're going to do a sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's going to star, it's going to be about, like, Sala. Or Sala. Whatever that. <laughs> <laughs> Indy! You wouldn't have Or even Marcus, <laughs> even Marcus Brody. Hello, anybody else? It's going to be about Marcus no Brody. Brody. You're like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Getting lost in his museum, you know? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so they did a they did a sequel out of, out of it. They did a sequel. Apparently, there was an Indian remake called yeah. uh, Near Namyan, which is uh, I guess the direct English translation is Determination. Um, in two thousand, they kind of did a new series of it, starring Tim Daly as Richard Kimball and think- Steve um, Stephen Lang's in that as well. Stephen Lang's the one armed man. Stephen Lang from Tombstone and from the Avatar movies. And, you know, I love Stephen Lang. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. He's a fantastic actor. Really intense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. A lot of Michael Mann stuff as well. I think it was only on for like a season. I think they might have it on YouTube. I didn't have time to watch any of it before. And since it got canceled, there's a big cliffhanger. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, they never got the resol- resolved. It was, one of these, it was one of these things where like I was going to start watching it and I was like, I'm going to start confusing things in the movie with this. If I, yeah, so you don't want to. 
So I didn't want to, I didn't want to watch it. And then there was recently, uh, like 2020, there was like another kind of remake television show, uh, with key, I think Kiefer Sutherland was the Tommy Lee Jones character, except for they're different characters. It's not. Oh, true. that's the, I've seen that series. That's what that is. Yeah. I mean, called, I haven't seen it, but I've seen. It's called the fugitive and it's basically like the same idea like but it's not richard it's not dr richard kimball and sam Gerard. it's like another fugitive story that's yeah. kind of based on this um, and uh the other thing the other yeah. thing i i would say is that apparently in uh the great smoky mountain railroad in uh dillsboro north carolina <laughs> that the train crash is a tourist attraction now and then i think we gotta go it's and a, i think you and i definitely need to make this yeah. pilgrimage because one of the one of the engines they used they took out they took out the 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 engine of one of the um standard diesel trains when it collided and i guess you can go look at the wreckage of that train and you can look at the wreckage of the bus and the engine pushing everything is still in operation and now it, it pulls or pushes a dinner car so you can get on this rain this this like line and you can go back and forth and have dinner and then as you go they may pass by an area where they have the rotting bus you know they have this locomotive still that's there and there might they said once the um when the movie came out the hilton hotel where they shot the climax scenes were giving tours as well of areas in the hotel where they shot the movie i don't know if they bring people to the roof or they brought it to like certain areas you know um so i think this is right up our alley you know we should freaking take that dinner car have dinner and go, you know, take some pictures and do a podcast on the uh, Dion, in that area. Dion and I have experience on uh, derailed uh, engine <laughs> cars. <laughs> Blake and I were on a yeah, and it was it was a one of these like almost like a Genesis or one of these trains that did that, that derailed. It wasn't going very fast, but my father worked in the railroad. He was a, in the railroad for forty years, and yeah, we we were that would be the fun when I was little. We'd go out, we'd go there to visit him, and then he'd be like, "All right, you want to go on the equipment and go do a move with somebody?" So we'd walk out with a crew, walk get up on the train, and in the yard they'd make a move with you know move a locomotive or move some cars to another track and all that and. And that day wasn't that what we were doing? We were we were yeah. Your you dad's and I like, went they're to gonna move the dad. train. Go take Blake on the train. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So we went and we we walked up. We got on the train and um, the we were doing stuff. And I think yeah, like the tie with the rails around. There's the, they used to be wooden, but now they're they're cement or concrete. One of them broke, so we were moving slowly, and then the, it kind of derailed, like it just broke. And they're like, "All right, everybody, get off the train." They had to get people off the, you know, they, they might, you know, my dad was worried at the time. Get off the train. We don't want anybody getting in trouble or whatever the heck it was at the time. And this is twenty five years ago, but um, yeah. So we've been on a derailed train, so to speak. Yeah, Dion's dad worked at the New Haven train station. Yeah. And so when there, we would, especially before Dion brought his car down to college, when we would go up visit his parents, we would take the train up. So we would always go visit his dad, whose office was like in a trailer. Yeah, yeah they never upgraded it until after, right before he quit. But uh, we'd, he we'd go in to say hi, and then he, he had like a mini fridge full of candy bars and sodas. And so it was always like, we're going to go see Uncle Patsy <laughs> get some yeah. soda and candy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because at the time that was something my dad on the side growing up and i guess some people's parents can identify what they would do this was like my mom would make like soup 
or chili. So on those cold nights, my dad would bring a slow cooker there and he'd have candy bars. He had this whole side business yeah. in food and stuff. So if you came in at the middle of the night, you want a soda, you want a soda. And different guys had mini fridges. They would lock their fridge. So if they were on duty or they were working, you'd open and you can go get a soda. You can get whatever because the break room was attached to the um, little office. He was this trailer. He was part of where they would play yeah. cards so and stuff like, like that in the break room. concession business going on in his office. Yeah. But All I would, we'd always hand. go say hi and I'd like, you want a candy bar? <laughs> And I was, have a Milky Way. And I was always allowed to take a Snickers without having have a Snickers, to put, exactly. put anything in the coffee can or whatever. Yeah, those are the days. Uh, so um, let me think. What, 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 what else have we left off? The Fugitive. Uh, and the original, that was, I think, one of the brilliant things about the original, too. I mean, it being a Quinn Martin production, which did things like The Invaders, Streets of San Francisco, Cannon, Barnaby Jones. It had a really weird style where w William Conrad, who was the star of Cannon, would narrate all that. And they would even have like act one, yeah, the interpreter, act now the conclusion of, you know. And, and that was how the Quinn Martin productions went. And uh, this was the first time people saw a show like this where a person who's running from the law, who's innocent, you know, and it gave and before a time of where you couldn't, record like you didn't have a vcr or or, or kind of like a dvr you couldn't record the show so that's why a lot of these shows were anthologies so to have a show be something where you they dared you to you had to tune in week to week because you might miss something in the overall plot of him clearing his name that was highly exciting for people and this is another show uh i've talked about i think on the last podcast um how i'm i was loving the naked city recently this had a phone book of people who, who would guest on the show. You had William Shatner, DeForest Kelly, you know, uh, Robert Duvall, Telly Savalas, uh, everybody you can think of who was working at the time, you know, would, would guest on this show. Uh, you know, he would come into contact with and either he'd get information about something or would play into the plot somehow of that episode. So it was a really who's who that, you know, it was another great example of these shows at the era that if you go back and watch the four seasons, not only is it supposed to be hugely rewarding, it was a show that kind of still holds up. Every other episode, you're having a famous person kind of guest in it, like Bruce Dern or somebody showing up, Vera Miles, or you're like, holy crap, you know, freaking, uh, you know, um, James Gregory or, or, or Martin Balsam or something like that. So that's really cool, I think. Yeah, I mean, every generation of TV has those... Um things well like even quincy or tall shack yeah. is great was another good yeah. one for that like Eric people show Estrada. up left and right. <laughs> um, that was just on last week that episode that was great that eric Estrada episode that eric Estrada yeah. episode's a good one or when we did um years ago we did the 70 was it 77 that spider-man series and i think it was like ted danson was in it ted danson um What's his face uh, from, uh, oh, my God, I forget his name, from um, Barnaby. Uh, um, he's from the Iker Sanction. He was in. Um, uh, oh, yeah, the bad guy. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, the bad guy. I love him. And, and uh, he was in uh, Night, Ga not Night Gallery, uh, Dark Shadows. And, uh, oh, I forget his darn name. But he was a fantastic actor. Who he's in Rocky. He's, really the, he's like the ring yeah. out, or like the promoter in Rocky. Yeah, and, right. and his name. How I've would heard, you like uh, to go? <laughs> he's the guy that offers Rocky the the uh fight against apollo in that scene where he's like brings his his card he's like i won't take no he thinks rocky thinks he's going there to for like a sparring job he's like i won't take no cheap shots or nothing 
He's like, no, Rock, I don't think you get it. We're, how would you like to fight Apollo Creed for the champion? That's that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And he had a name where he just switched his first name and last name. And, uh, you know, he has a very unique name. And it's, I'm blanking on what the heck his name is right now. That's really Thayer. David Thayer. Thayer David. Thayer David. And his real name was David Thayer. But he said, who has a first name as Thayer? So he switched it. So, his, so his, he billed himself as Thayer David. Yeah. And he's in. He he's in like kind of like the the Manchurian Candidate episode of the Spider Man show where he's remember he was brainwashing people or something. Yeah, yeah. very good. But you know, MacGyver, but all yeah. those shows like MacGyver has Jason yeah. Priestley. A lot of those, tell you know, any of those shows back then, you know, uh, Kojak, Kojak, or any any of those shows of the seventies, Rockford Files, which was also something. The creator for um, uh, the Fugitive, uh, Roy Huggins. He developed Maverick, and he developed also um, um, well, who did I just mention? The Rockford Files, you know, the guy who created this show. And it was supposedly not to to, to stop down too. This was semi based off a real incident. I remember that that was the other thing my dad telling me, you know, that this is based off a TV show, and this really happened in real life. And then you kind of find out about it. Some of it was there was a real doctor at the time in the fifties who was uh, convicted of his wife's murder, and maybe spent like ten years in prison. A doctor. And then he was acquitted and came out, and this was kind of loosely based. Although Roy Huggins says at the time it wasn't, he had some knowledge um, related to the to details. And then that doctor went on to be a uh, darn uh, wrestler. He ended up wrestling, <laughs> like low circuits and stuff. Like, oh, you guys got to work, you know. If you can't get a, you know, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. I forget that it was based off true events, so to speak. The catalyst of the sh- the series idea. Uh, film was a huge hit. As we discussed, it uh, it was the reportedly was the first U.S. movie to be screened in China for decades, in like forty years. Yeah, um, after the country lifted its restrictions on foreign movies, this was like the first U.S. movie to to uh, to be. And you can see how why it works. I mean, it has a lot of uh, set pieces, uh, sequences that don't need a lot of dialogue. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of you know very simple. You can understand what's happening or what's going on and what the stakes are. And that's another thing too. You being an editor as a day job, they said they brought six editors in, and this movie, all six editors were nominated. But there was such a turnaround of them shooting this movie so quickly because of Harrison Ford's availability versus when the movie was supposed to come out. Like they shot this at the beginning of 93 and it comes out like in August of 93. So yeah. there was like this six weeks or something like that to shoot the whole movie. And that's the reason why a lot of it where they're like rewriting on the set that day and they're getting things really kind of guerrilla styling and stuff. And then at the same time they're processing all that footage they're sending it. They're using avids at the time to kind of edit and assemble, which was kind of a new technology using it digitally as opposed to using linear actual cutting splicing on a moviola or a steam back. So I find the editing in this movie is kind of interesting because not only about the aforementioned, like I like the, the orientation, you understand the locations and stuff like that of what's going on and establishes the, you know, the, the area, but I like how sometimes they set you up for this thing. Like, you know, when, the other fugitive, the, the, the African-American escapes at the beginning yeah, yeah. and you know, and he's like, be good. And then they set it up, at least I thought when I was little, that they were going to get Richard Kimball. They discovered him, found him, but then no, it's the other guy there. You yeah. know, but they the through the use of editing and story, they don't really alert you of that. And you think they're busting into this great sequence in this old rundown kind of house in in you know Chicago around like stuff that they've been taken down for eminent domain or whatever. 
they go into this old house and there's this great steady cam, like, you know, docs, like almost like cops, the show shot of them going through. And then you find out, oh, it's not Richard Kimball they're going after. It's the other guy that got away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I find the editing in this is very good and that, you know, they kind of like sometimes misleads you in a, in a way that doesn't piss you off, but you just like, oh, you know. Yeah. And also, like you said, it was apparently done so, like, so efficiently with so many editors that didn't they, um, like, re- like, push up the release date like it was done early so they released it earlier than originally expected um yeah. nominated for seven academy awards best pi- nominated for best picture best cinematography best original score best sound best sound editing and best film editing and uh Tom Lee jones ended up winning for best supporting uh actor so yeah, and really, that probably helped its popularity too. That you know, this thing ends up getting. Not only is it a huge blockbuster in the cinema, and it's a big, very well received film for audiences that people like this story. That it also is something that then gets all the it gets nominated for best picture that yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, it was a that, huge you know, critical that, success. Yeah. Also, it's also weird because like you know now there's ten best pictures nominations. Yeah. but back then there was like five or. I don't even know, 93, but it's not the kind of movie that you would expect to be nominated for Academy Award no. for Best Picture, but it was. So it ended up was against like Goodfellas or something. It was like up against some really big movies too. Yeah, and I forget who. Oh, I think Harrison Ford was nominated for Best Actor, but he maybe was he, is he nominated for Best Actor? No, I don't think so. I think the only performance. Or maybe it's Best Picture. Time. Best Picture, Best maybe Cinematography, was... Best Score, Best Sound Editing. Best sound and best film editing, and then best supporting actor. Philadelphia, the Tom Hanks movie, won over it for something, and I forget if that won Best Picture for that year. But Philadelphia beat it out in some category. Um, you know, and the only thing it ended up winning was Tom Lee Jones' Best Supporting Actor, which kind of really solidified him then, because then know. he goes on and does like everything in the nineties. Like, you see, you um, know, twenty some years of being in the business. Now he's like a bona fide yeah, movie you know, star. It's 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 crazy, you know. He's he's acting in the mid seventies, like in that uh, that crazy movie with uh, uh, William Devane, you know, Thunder <laughs> Thunder. Yeah, like, that's another movie we Rolling we should Thunder, do here. Is that the name of that? Rolling movie? Thunder. That's a that's a movie we would do on this, like a Grindhouse movie. Now, the one thing we haven't really talked about because you're an aficionado on it, but uh, watching this movie, you know, it, it is that great Giallo kind of Hitchcockian. The man, you know, the the wrong man accused. It has that great kind of um, template we always talk about that really works well if it's done properly. The wrong man accused that has to kind of free himself. Either the wrong man who's accused that has to clear his name or the man who witnesses the crime and then has to go solve it himself, whatever the way that is. And I think it's... The every man, like, just thrown into... This whatever adventure. situation yeah very Hitchcock, and i think it's yeah. done so effective it's, it's done so effectively hitchcock of course did it with like saboteur and uh the man who knew too much or even north by northwest yeah. and then 39 steps that whole, was probably the first time he did it yeah and then the whole you know 70s you know you have like the argento stuff and all these and then the, the palma of the early 80s like dress to kill or all these different things or uh you know there's certain these movies that have the that kind of template and i think those are always done if you get a good story like that and it gets you on the run and it's leading the, you know, and you have to clear your name and your people are chasing you or the other devices that nobody wants to help you and the detectives or cops don't want to help you. So you decide to solve it yourself, no matter what, you know, um, 
that formula usually works like this, you know, you can make a tight little thriller script out of it. That Giallo. Yeah. Hitchcockian, yeah. You know, like unlike an know? Argento movie, very rarely are like in the Argento movies, are they, it's like they witnessed the murder and they're like believed, you know, it might be like, don't leave the country or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it's more like they take it upon themselves to try to say, cure like solve the murder because they remember a something still in the investigation or something. There's yeah. Like, and no, they, they no, remember yeah. something about it that doesn't add up and it kind of drives their curiosity. Um, but yeah, very much. I mean, it's basically, I mean, it is a murder mystery, you know, you know, like we, like we know who did it, but we don't know who that guy is or why he did. They don't it. even, that's brilliant too. They don't even address that to like the third act. And then it comes in, you're like, oh, I forgot there's a one-armed man. And, you know, I mean, cause that was almost like a gimmick. He's chasing a one-armed man, which we said goes back to the series. So yeah. by the time they come around and start, you know, and that's, Kind of, it does that well as well that we get so caught up in him running away, getting away. That the cat and mouse, it's done in a way that you know these right, they're right on each other's tails. There's a lot of times where they almost bounce into each other, and they get you know then he's able to get away in a believable enough way where you think it's kind of plausible in a certain sense. You know, I mean, maybe when Jim jumping off the dam or whatever, or jumping off the bus is kind of like stretching the, you know, the uh, the the realm of possibility there, but. There's so much of act two of him getting away, finding a life, and then turning into disguising himself somewhat, helping people where he can, like the kid at the in the hospital or the the other guy, the the guard that gets stabbed, he helps him out of the, the ambulance and stuff like that. That like by the time he gets to act three, and then we're like, Oh yeah, he's trying to clear his what and then you know, <laughs> we get the and we figure out who the one arm man is and how he's connected, and then so it to me it never even felt it was just tacked on. It felt like it worked. Yeah. Know? No, I mean, it's going back to the top of this show. We're going to bookend the, this episode with yeah. talking about like how kind of brilliant uh, st- the, the storytelling is of this movie. Yeah. I mean, just to reiterate, it's, it's a, it's, it's a relatable idea. It's, it's yes, we've seen it before, but the reason why we've seen it before is because it works. The, the pacing of this movie is, you know, uh, certainly one of the things that I think makes this movie work as well as it does. It just, it's, it just, it's just solid. Everything about it just kind of works. It's the stakes, like you know, you know, the, yeah, I'm, I'm like at the end when they're on top of the building and there's a sniper in the Chicago. Like, if you got a shot, you take a shot, and it's like, oh my god! And then is he gonna <laughs> get killed, or you know? And then when Joe Plantileano gets the eye beam to the face, I'm like, oh my god! That still to this day, like, looks so painful. And it's like, is he gonna get it or not? And you know, so it's like I'm always at the edge of my seat. Is he gonna get away? Is he gonna get caught? Is he gonna get shot? Whatever. Yeah, it's just. Uh... <clears throat> It's just one of those things where everything kind of came together. And even in researching and the discussions we had today, like it seems like everybody else's, even everybody that made it, it's kind of surprised that everything came together kind of as well as it did. Yeah. And it's a real kind of, uh, you know, it's a real kind, oh. kind of uh, credit to Andrew Davis for being able to kind of pull all these elements together, being knowing when to collaborate and how to collaborate. Harrison Ford was apparently very involved obviously with the script since they were kind of rewriting it on set um 
you know, more than probably most kind of leads are in terms of the creative input that he had and, and the formation of the story. And uh, it's just a wonderful... And his relationship with Tommy Lee Jones probably too, so that that's why he let Tommy Lee Jones kind of reword some of that because I think that, that line, I don't care, wasn't even supposed to be the original line. He was supposed to say something else. That's not my job or something. And Tommy Lee Jones like, I wouldn't say that. And there was kind of an argument and he kind of says that I don't care. And that's yeah. kind of the iconic line that I'll remember along with the bus, you'd see in the trailer, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's like that was the... I think it was originally you know, was a really Harry, big line. I think originally Harrison was, Ford was saying, she, he said, I love you. And then Tommy Lee Jones goes, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think that's originally how that scene went. <laughs> yeah. And then Tommy Lee's like, well, I don't know if this is going to be the, or Daniel Roebuck puts his hand up and says, do you think this is right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's going to, that's the, what we're going Far be it for me to intervene here, but I just wanted to say, uh, and it just, again, it holds up, right? I mean, after 30 years, this is the anniversary that it's a good, fast-paced, edge-of-your-seat thriller. It's yeah, almost I mean, like a it's, perfect script. It's not really Surprising. dated. It's not really dated at all other than, like, the cell phones. Yeah, the tech, right? Yeah. You know, of him, you know, of, uh, even at the end. It's like I, you know, he has the he has the 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 cell phone in the car, you know, and he's talking, yeah. and then at the end of the movie, they bookend it where he's like, Tommy Lee Jones is like, you know, Nichols borrowed your car. That's how we get the call. And then you know, see Harrison Ford like, oh, of course. And the audience is like, oh, of course. That's how the call. He called the one armed man in his house. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, everything works. It's like ah. Yeah. You know, these little subtleties. For the kids today, you know, back before we all had cell phones, some people had cars in their phones in their cars. Yeah, it was like a brick. It was like a suitcase you'd go bring in and bring out like that. Or them him using the landline. You know, Chicago Bell, Ma Bell, you see like all those old things of, you know, they're sending a fax and they, you know, wait for the fax to come over and all this stuff. Or you know, it's just, uh, it's just all these great little plot points. Yeah. It's just uh solid. We've done like, you know, obviously it's, there's not a clock in the same way as something like Taken or Back to the Future, but there is because he's being chased so much. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like yeah, you, every got 40, scene. you don't need 48 yeah. hours, but you're just waiting that like he's, he's running out of time. I mean, even the scene where he rents the apartment from the middle, the Eastern Europeans and he's in the basement. There's again, oh, the police clever come, use of yeah. deception. The police come, you think he's getting raided and they're raiding the, the, the son, the older son, the, you know, the adult son of the house that's porn, I don't know, child porn or whatever. Yeah, something, something but it's like, not. again, it's like it, not savory, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's something else. He's on, he's, he's on Pornhub or something looking around in 93, but it's even like, um, that again, it's a use of like, you know, you, you don't, they, they purposely leave out information to make the audience think one thing and then they switch around by adding another kind. Like, oh, it is kind of like you a, know, a brilliant sleight of hand that's happening throughout the movie. Yeah. In these kinds of scenes. And I think that helps because it leaves the audience on the edge. They don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know. And that's again, keeping you interested and not, you're not getting bored and you're, you're staying along with the ride. Cause this could have been a very boring movie. It could have been. been all just exposition, you know, but it's just, uh, the action is great. Like I like we said, like the, strategically placing like important action suspense sequences yes, throughout yeah. the movie keep your keep your attention just the greatly just the pacing is great everything about it just kind of works i'm glad we did it i don't even think this was in you know we have a 
somewhere we have a list of all the movies that we were we would talk about doing when we were doing the show more regularly and then people on facebook or twitter would say like hey you guys should do this and then we'd put it on the list we had like this massive list of movies that we would occasionally check things off of and we would look at to say what should we do and i don't even know if this was ever on the list like i don't know if we ever no, even I, I thought about right. doing this <laughs> No, it just was something like it was a big part of our childhood, but it was just something like, you know, until you mentioned, like, duh, that's a great idea. It's like, it's, everyone's going to remember this who was around back then. You know, I mean, it was a, and then you think of the influence where, of course, we haven't talked about, but, you know, the, his Tommy Lee Jones's monologue that everyone used to say for th three years, you'd always hear like that, you know, we're looking at our future versus Kimball, odd house, round house, 10 house in the area. <laughs> It would be it would always be lampooned or or kind of homage in other shows. Then they made a Leslie Nielsen movie, Wrongly Accused, where yeah. it's kind of you know I mean where they're doing they're lampooning it. So I mean it's just such the influence in the '90s of this for a good five years or so was all you know this people jumping off of trains and train crashes or whatever the hell Simpsons probably you know did it and <laughs> homaged it you know all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you know. Anyway, I think uh, yeah, I felt like it was a little. Anyway, we didn't talk about. What? I don't think I got the, everything on my list of notes, I think. Yeah. I just... Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel a little rusty. Like, I feel like... Yeah. Well, that maybe that's what I'm feeling, too. We're, like, a little all over the place. So maybe I just don't feel like we hit everything uh, in the right way, but I guess we have. Oh, Le Lester Holt's in the movie, too. I'm a big Dateline fan. Lester Holt always shows up, I'm Lester Holt, and I'm a Muppet, because he always looks, like, <laughs> so thin. He like, looks like he's, like, a marionette at this point, and he's in the movie. He's one of the reporters, and, you know, he's got a mustache, local reporters. At the time, when you'd have local reporters, real reporters playing themselves in these movies, you know, so that's interesting. Lester you know what's a, what's a good movie that's, like, not in this mold, but, like, in this, I feel like, in this vibe that I think a lot of people we... A lot of people of our generation probably love and think is great, but never had quite the notoriety of this movie as Sneakers with Robert Redford. And oh, Sam I Lord. love <laughs> Sneakers. It's, yeah. uh, what's his face? Is like, River Phoenix is like maybe second to last movie, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, great movie. Uh, but like, you know, great, it's like a bit cast. of like a thriller. Yeah. There's a little bit of a, it's a similar vibe. But uh, obviously, a very different. That's something story we should line. do uh, on this because that's a movie that needs some love these days. Because that's a really great. It seems like that's a movie that was like you know the best minds in Hollywood got together and four <laughs> of them created that movie because there's so many like yeah. left hand turns and I haven't seen it since it came out, but I remember really liking the several times I saw it back. I, I then. think I watched it in early COVID, so maybe late, maybe like twenty, sometime in 2020, I rewatched it and. It holds up. It's very weird. I mean, not in like surreal or anything, but it's just like when you watch it, it's like you're like, what a you like, what an odd move, like what an odd concept for a movie. Like you know, it's kind of like yeah. unlike any other movie in 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 its like kind of like its narrative and stuff. And so it's almost that, like a like almost the conversation too. You know that Gene Hackman. It's like such an odd topic to have a movie centered around. Yeah, like it's you know? like what a weird story to tell <laughs> but it's, it's almost really like, well it's like people who it's like analysts i forget if they're cia or what, it's like people who were in that job were the ones who came up with the story to tell about it yeah yeah like hey you what know, about you know, uh doing this yeah you know how is it dated in the sense of technology 
you know, because a lot of the stuff is, you know, you know, early nineties. So I mean, yeah, well, that, obviously the computer, like the computers look weird and it's, oh, yeah, and yeah. like the, the device, the, the MacGuffin of the movie is hidden in like an answering machine. I don't know if you remember yeah. that part of the movie. No, I don't. <laughs> Um, maybe vaguely so, i remember him yeah. like the blind remember he's going in the trunk and he has and then he he's able to retrace his entire steps by just remembering in sequence what he heard yeah, you yeah. know which i wouldn't have been able to be any help in that sense i always remember that but i mean like the tech is i mean obviously not the way it looks but like the idea of what the technology is doing is yeah. kind of few, ahead of its time so in that like sense in, in that sense it kind of dates well but the yeah. actual like physical like technology of the computers and the dial, like you said, like the DOS screens and stuff like that stuff is dated, but that doesn't mean the dial up the prodigy, you know? Yeah. Anyway, that's I just funny. felt like for some reason I felt like that's another movie. That would be a great double feature with this movie. <laughs> it would be sne okay. sneakers fugitive double feature. Yeah. Remember that movie that came out? I never saw with one of the Baldwin brothers. Um, and he's handcuffed to, um, Lawrence Fishburne. Oh was it, yeah, was that Stephen Baldwin? Yeah, and it's called like Run or Fled. It's like one word. I feel like that'll be a good double feature with this, and that's kind of a remake of that Sidney Poitier and um, Tony Curtis, right? Tony Curtis movie, yeah, um, which is very famous. Um, uh, the Defiant Ones, I think that's called. Uh, but yeah, that would be that would be cool. Seeing maybe it's called Fled, early '90s kind of a or mid '90s kind of a vibe. But uh, this was fun to do because it's fun doing a Harrison Ford that isn't, you know, I mean, I would love at some point to cover the other Indiana Jones movies and the other Star Wars movies and maybe even like a Jack Ryan. But it's fun to do something out of Harrison Ford's catalog that isn't attached to those movies. And I'm sure there's others if we looked at his catalog. Yeah. But it's fun to, yeah. you know, do something that's interesting. Air Force you know, That's one. not a throwaway. Air Force. Oh, I love Air Force. <laughs> you get off my plane. <laughs> so that in the theater. We might have saw that you know, together, I, I think. Yeah, I might have saw that in the theater with you in 98 or whenever that was. Your Commodore Commission's case is a good negotiator. He just bought you another two hours. <laughs> ah, God bless Gary Ullman. Um, yeah, good movie here. I'm glad we did it. It's fun. I hope this go, gets people to go back and uh, talk about it. And we can book in this podcast by saying, since you brought up at the beginning the Three Kings, we do get B.B. King is playing in the background of that bar. The thrill is gone while he's on the phone. So there we go. That's the reason why we brought that up. Because B.B.'s on in the background of that real bar. You know. Good so very, baby. very cool. Good old B.B. Thrill is gone. I can't, I can't hit those highs anymore as I used to. <clears throat> um, so, um, yes, this was fun. Good times. God bless Richard Jordan. Uh, I, I would love to see all the footage uh, if they ever, you know, his last role or whatever come out. If they did a special edition. Or if there's stuff on the cutting room floor. Maybe in another hundred years, that'll be the next thingy. Just release all the footage you have on a movie to get people to buy it again. Yeah. You know? In the, in the digital age, you can just digitize it all and then have all the, you know, because people are used to, it's like watching, listening to a bootleg. People are used to seeing work prints and stuff like that. Who cares? It's also interesting it's to see the early roles of Julianne Moore. She's in Universal, oh, isn't yeah. she in Universal Soldier also? Is she? She's in, uh, Tales is she the, the romantic Dark, lead? Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, which we did on the show. Which we did on here, and which the opening sequence with her is done in my hometown in Bronxville here. In the, in the, the opening credits, she's driving around the little village there. Uh, and she's in a whole crap load of stuff at the beginning, you know. And she used to remember be like pantsless. You'd always see like, um, you know, 
It's not some sort of. It's nudity. not Julianne Moore, but she is in something. One of those kinds of movies. Maybe it's, maybe it's one of those Stallone movies. Yeah, maybe at the time. Like assassin she a lot or of something. <laughs> maybe she's an. She ass- might be an assassin. <laughs> yeah, she might be an assassin. <laughs> I was thinking maybe. I, I mean, thinking. supposedly, this role got her Jurassic Park two. Supposedly, uh, Spielberg saw this, liked her, and then got gave her Jurassic Park two. So she was blown up at that time because she's in Shortcuts, she's in The Big Lebowski, she's in a whole bunch of stuff at that time. Um, you know, I bumped into her in a green room runs, and she's really short. Yeah, she's I was like, oh hi, Julianne Moore, a little, little petite girl. Yeah, well, there was that freshman year. You and I, we're going down the oh, alley yes. now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. By Midtown Comics. For all intents and purposes, the show's over if you want to turn it yeah. off. Good feel, night, everybody. Feel free to. <laughs> and as the credits are going up, we're just still talking. <laughs> we went, we were in New York City, freshman year. We went to Midtown Comics, which is like, what, 40th or 39th? 39th? 39th in like Broadway, right? Yeah. It's in the Garment District, right? You know, with the people know the yeah west side there and uh i was throwing something we out we came like, out and we you sat down somewhere we were someplace and we were on, on the, the phone steps, lost my cell phone yeah maybe I lost that's my cell phone that day i you got up and we left and you were like sitting or looking for it or something and i i don't know i had something in my pocket or i put in a piece of gum and i went to go throw something into the trash can on the corner of like 39th and broadway and as i was throwing something into the trash. Like this hand came in and dropped like a newspaper into the trash. And I just looked up at who it was and it was Julianne Moore. Yeah. And, uh, and I had like, I recognize her, but at that point this was like 97, 98. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, it was like whenever it was after boogie nights maybe, but I don't know if it was like after, Right around the time of Big Lebowski, maybe, and uh, well, we knew who she was because you were like, "Hey, it's Julianne Moore." But I, I didn't know. Who, but I didn't know who. I didn't know her name, and I and I looked up and I saw her, so I recognized her, and I just I don't know. I said hi. <laughs> she she kind of smiled and said hi, and then she walked away, and then I came back. I said, "You know that the redhead woman from like Boogie Nights and and Big Lebowski?" And I think you were like, "You mean Julianne Moore?" I was like, "Yeah, her." I was like, "I just saw her in the corner." And you ran over there just to see if you could cra- catch a glimpse of her, but she was she had gone into the yeah. crowd. Yeah, I was always a big fan of her. I just remember um, thinking like era. her eyelashes were like blonde or something. Like her eyelashes were really light. Like when she's in a movie, actually they put makeup on so it looked dark. Yeah. <laughs> but I looked up and I yeah. saw her and I was like, hi. And she's like, hi. That was yeah. I walked into our in, in a green room and it was like and I didn't, she wasn't supposed to be in the green room. I walked in with her like holy crap and she's like only like five. I don't know. I have no concept of height, but she was like five three or five four. But she, and she was also in. She didn't have her shoes on. She was like in on in her socks or something because I think she might have been changing to leave. You know, she did the appearance or whatever. So she had no shoes on. So she was even shorter. And I was like holy crap. Oh, hi, excuse me. <laughs> you know, love gin boogie nights. <laughs> Love Jin Shortcuts. You were great in um, Tales from the Dark Side. I love Jin Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Um, and then we also, we have the Harrison Ford story. Remember where Harrison <laughs> we've Ford, told which we've, we've told that. Yeah, I was going to say, because I walked into him and on 72nd and Amsterdam, bumped into him. Uh, and that was, that was. Go, go listen to so either, these, either in Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can go listen. That's or the a, holiday, or the there, holiday, Star Wars holiday special. There's the a Harrison Ford story. Three. So go listen to those and you can hear that. Yeah. It's a way for us to uh, well, this was fun. listen to the old stuff. 
yeah, this was fun. And we always suggest for people to go back. And we get a lot of people who say they've been listening or they just came into us and they're going back, going through the catalog, which is awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of people who are longtime <laughs> listeners who go back to listen because we don't really do the show much for it anymore. But we, ought, we do hear from new listeners who start from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, and binge it all. One long weekend, you know, it's a very long weekend. And we, so we, like we to appreciate your time, that. everyone. Yeah, and we're still trying to do stuff. And I think we'll do another one before we know it. And, you know, we'll have a couple more out this year, which will be fun. So, and this was fun doing it, you know, it kind of gets us, um, stretching again, getting those muscles, those tight muscles kind of like loose, you know, so it's fun. And, um, you know, we're always doing something. You can find both of us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, um, stuff like that. And those things, um, and a good way to support us, we always say is, you know, buy our content. Uh, I've got two books out. Blake's got two books out. If you go find us on Amazon or wherever, you know, books are sold, you can find stuff and you can get our books and stuff. And that's a good way. Make a great gift. Make a great gift for whoever you are or whoever you want to give it to. As John Pizzarelli would say, buy in bulk. Buy in bulk. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're both working on stuff now, which, you know, we're getting down the road. You know, that's always exciting. And uh, I don't know, you think we could, we'll do this probably before you know it, right? We'll get another one done probably by summertime. Do like a summer. I'll try. We can, we can yeah. try. My summer's yeah. kind of, I was telling Dion before this, I, my summer's uncertain. I might be on the West Coast for a big chunk of the summer. So we might not oh, be able to have true. a sleepover unless a fly, fit fly, that in. fly you out for a sleepover. <laughs> We gotta we gotta fit it in before you leave because then if you're gonna be out there then we gotta we have to also think about the anniversary too. Yes, the anniversary. That's, that's true. The anniversary episode to, might come late this year because I might. Yeah, be we're out gonna there. have to do a very very big deep dive into something like we do Empire Strikes Back. You're like, oh, fuck, <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> oh, God. A lot of work. Oh God. Uh, maybe another Indiana Jones. We do the with some Raiders of Lost Ark. We actually no, discussed. We, Lost we actually discussed the possible anniversary movie. But we're yeah, not gonna, I don't recall that. My hair looks crazy. <laughs> I already, yeah, it looks like a like a like a wick. You got to go under one side. It looks it looks it good. Is, it looks it like you wild. spent four hours in the makeup chair. <laughs> you know, it looks great. Unfortunately, you guys can't see it, but trust me, it's no, no really strange it. at yeah. the moment. Well, it's bedhead. Thank you very you know, much. It's for, late. Yeah, of course. It looks great. Yeah. So you you had your, had your ball cap on. You came off your baseball cap. Your your skull cap. You took it off, and now there we're uh, we're getting yeah getting, getting too early old in the to hours, stay up so. this late. So I know it's getting ridiculous. Can't even drink anymore. Ridiculous. Anyway, so thank you very much. Check us out on all the me- platforms. You can find Blake and I. Uh, on social media, you can find the show wherever you usually get your podcasts. We're kind of there. Uh, have a listen, credit, questions, comments, concerns, hit us up. Check out our content. Uh, we have books you can buy and other stuff. Blake's got some stuff in the pipeline coming up, which will be fun. Uh, all kinds of good stuff, right? Yeah. So stay tuned. Uh, all things Score to Death at scoretodeath.com on social media. So, And uh, I guess that's going to do it for tonight. Have a good spring and a good, good time in 2023, everybody. Later. Later.